Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And yes, this podcast is back. Uh, so if you would like to support the making of the podcast, we have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash tofop, T-O-F-O-P. Uh, if you sign up there, not only do you get Willosophy episodes ad-free posted up there, there will be any bonus content that we have from the Willosophy world will be going up there as well. And there is all the bonus content from my other podcast, Tofop. Fofop, two guys, one cup, all. Uh, if you sign up to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Tofop at any level. So if you sign up at any level on the Patreon page, uh, you do get access to all the content. There are comic strips. Uh, there is incredible James Fosdyke art. Uh, there is a whole backlog of stuff that you could uh, find your way through if you sign up to our Patreon page. Another way to support the show, if you like the show and you want to support it, is to just share it around, tell people about it, let people know that it is back let them know about episodes that perhaps aren't the hugest stars in the world because what I love doing on this show is obviously you know getting on new people and introducing new people perhaps to you as an audience maybe a name you haven't heard of or a name you've just barely heard of and you would like to know more about that person today's episode is a very good example of that Gabby Bolt someone who is new on the scene but um I think doing some incredible work and has a very interesting story to tell already and a very interesting perspective on life and her work and her career already and it's it's a great pleasure and an honor to check in on somebody at that stage of their life and their evolution and and their journey uh, but what I need in return is for people to listen to those episodes as much as they listen to the ones that have Hamish Blake on them, because then I get to do more of those ones as well as the ones that have uh, big stars on the episode. But there will be definitely a mix of, uh, you know, big names that you've heard of and uh, just people that I think you should hear about or that you are going to be hearing about more and more as things go on. Uh, finally, speaking about people who have gone on forever, it's me. That's who I'm talking about right now. <laughs> so uh, I am still doing stand-up. Uh, my show will illuminate. If you are listening to this in the week that it comes out, my show will illuminate. will be in Perth this Saturday night. The early show is sold out. Uh, there may or may not be tickets to the late show on Saturday night uh, by the time you hear this. But what I will say is obviously it's my first time in Perth since pre-pandemic. So I would love to see you there and sell out both of those shows on Saturday night. After that, uh, the week after that, Brisbane Comedy Festival. Uh, the early show on Friday night is probably the one that uh, has the most tickets available. The rest of the shows there are selling out very quickly. So if you want to come and see me in Brisbane as part of the Brisbane Comedy Festival, uh, then get in quickly for that. And then I have some scattered gigs around the place, Townsville, Sutherland Shire, Wyong, and uh, a couple of other places. So all the details of those are at Comedy dot com dot au if you can't get to see me do stand up live in person last year's special well logical is available for free on abc iview so all you have to do is go onto the iview app and you go in there and you watch that and just by watching that you're not just hopefully you know having a good time watching that show but you also are supporting me because the more people who watch it obviously the more chance that the abc will let me do another one and they will make that as well so speaking of which uh, if you have not bought my book and you have been thinking about buying my book, it is called I Am Not Fine Thanks. And uh, you can find that in all the places that you find books. Uh, if you're coming to one of the shows, I have signed copies available at the shows if you come along to see me live. So uh, those are the various ways that you can help support this show if you like it. I know that sounds like a lot of plugs, but uh, um, 
you know, that's how the show gets made. And so if those things get supported, then um, obviously it gives me the freedom to be able to, you know, put some time back into doing this show. So if you like this show, um, they they are some good ways to support this show. I think you are going to really enjoy today's guest, Gabby Bold. If you know who Gabby is, then... I think you're going to enjoy finding out more about her. But if you're, you're hearing about her for the first time, I think uh, this is going to be a fun journey and a story for you to hear. So um, uh, without uh, – that, that's it. That's the plug. Not bad. See, I, and you know what the thing is? I'm not doing an intro for every episode. You're not getting the plugs all the time. I'm trying my best. <laughs> Uh, come see the live uh, philosophy. I am doing a live philosophy with the Bridget Delaney as part of the Sydney Writers Festival, May 25th at Carriage Works. Um, if you like this podcast and you would like to see it live and you're in Sydney and you want to see it as part of the Sydney Writers Festival, Bridget Delaney, uh, Wellmania, you might know her show from Netflix, Wellmania, but um, also she's uh, written um, a, a book about happiness and stoicism uh, that I think uh, is super interesting uh, and I think it'll be a fun conversation. If you ever read her columns, <laughs> uh, then uh, you know she's someone who's got an incredible uh, brain as both a journalist and uh, someone who's got an incredible sense of humor as well. So she's uh, probably going to be a really fantastic philosophy guest, I would imagine, because she has thought deeply about philosophy and the world, but she's also a super entertaining person. So that's as part of the Sydney Writers Festival, May 25th at Carriage Works. That's a lot of plugs. I understand. Look, if you've skipped through this, then that's fine too. But if you're stuck with this, I appreciate it. I appreciate you the most of all the people who listen to the plugs. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Philosophy with Gabby Bolt. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So hello and who are you? Hi, Will. I'm Gabby Boltz and I'm a musical comedian. Hello. <laughs> I, I never know what to say. It's hello. I know. Too perky. It, it's so. a, you are perky. I am very perky. This is morning, which is, mm. you know, I don't. I don't know. I wonder if it affects the like tone of the conversations I have with people the time of the day. Do you think I that reckon. if I caught you at a different time of the day, Gabby oh. Bolt, we would have a substantially different y- conversation? Yes, 100%. Like if you caught me past 7pm, I reckon I would be, it would be kind of a depressing listen. Oh. I just, I just find that like evening just, it feels sad. Like evening, it's evening like it's feels dark. sad. We're off to a good yeah, you know what? We're off to a good start. <laughs> you evening wanted, you feels deep, sad. Deep philosophical thought. When the that, sun that's... goes down, is I that what it is? Yeah, I think it's like it's also you know nighttime. You're sort of washing off the day. You get into bed and you have that sort of mm. three to four hours before you, get... you actually go to sleep. Oh, I was going to say oh, you get into bed at seven. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm a slob. I'll get home and be like, oh, I don't have to be up. Great, yeah. okay. easy. Okay, so getting you in the morning then, it's 10 a.m. when we start this conversation. Like, what are you normally like at 10 a.m.? Is this like a, are you normally up and about? And like, because you started with a lot of energy. Yeah, I think if I have a thing to do, Mm. like today I had to go somewhere. I think it's like, you know, you prepare that in your head. I'm like, okay, cool, catch the train at nine. I'll go get a coffee. I'll like plan (laughs) out my day. If I don't have to leave the house, I am the most unproductive human being ever. I'll just sit around and do nothing. Although yesterday I cleaned the bathroom, which is, you know, Winning. Okay, so... um, I'm usually quite lazy. Okay, so I must admit that I've become one of those people that likes to keep on... uh, Here's the thing. You got a schedule? (laughs) No, it's not a schedule, but I hate this the most of everything because 
Like Jordan Peterson, yep. I think like oh, he's, he's terrible. <laughs> yeah, good. I need I to point gonna, that out. I was going to say, where's that going? Yeah, Jordan, he's terrible, but <laughs> Jordan, well, it is. He's the but. Jordan Peterson is terrible on yep. all the all the all men's the rights things yeah, and all yeah, those yeah. things. Just like yeah. wrong and terrible Awful. and horrible and you know all those things. <laughs> yep, but. The whole making your bed in the morning thing. Okay, no, but that's it's a military actually, thing, isn't I mean, it? of course. Like, yeah. he didn't come up with it. No. He just, you know. He, he says he did. Yeah. Well, he didn't. People yeah. were making their bed in the morning before fucking Jordan Peterson I came think, along with his rules. But I, I think Jordan Peterson's jumping the gun there, though, telling a bunch of men that follow him to make their bed because the likelihood of all of those men actually having a bed frame is quite mm. slim. Or making it to the bed from the couch. Yeah, 100%. Where they fell asleep drunk in front of sport or, during the or middle of the night. Or assuming their couch and the bed are not the same receptacle it's for sleep. a good sleep. point, actually. Yeah. So, but I have very much got into the wherever I am, even yep. if I'm in a hotel room on the road, like yeah. in the morning. Make the bed. Make the bed. Because even in a hotel room, I didn't even used to do that because, mm. of course, someone, you're staying in a hotel room, 100%. someone else will make the bed for you at some stage. But yeah. just that simple act of trying to, like, keep you just the day go, together. Yeah. I've started, I've done something, yeah. I've achieved something. And I, I take it a little bit further. In the morning, I literally get up now and I'm like, make the bed. Clean something. Do the you know, washing if I've got some washing to do. Like, yeah. you know, do the dishes, make sure that – and it really does. Yeah, it does. I mean, I'm not saying Jordan Peterson's got <laughs> some good ideas, guys. But, but, yeah, I, I think – I mean, there are some days where yeah. I do that, but I'm also in a share house with three other people in a three-bedroom house. So it's my boyfriend and my two mates from uni. And but my brief uni career, I was only there for six months. But I – Got yeah. some mates though. Got some mates. That's so, all you need. You know what? It's worth the hex debt. Right. Um, but yeah, I think when you're on top of each other a bit, sometimes just getting out is my version of tidying up the day, like going outside. Like today I went for a walk to the train station to come here and I was like, you know what? Walking's great. I always think walking's a load of shit and then I do it and I feel amazing. And it's just, yeah, it's the wildest thought. But yeah, making your bed in the morning, I, my version of that is actually picking up all of my clothes and putting them in a laundry receptacle. Like that's, it's I mean, always that's a version of, of it. Yeah. Same thing. I mean, not the same thing, yeah. but in the same zone. <laughs> same zone. Yeah, tidying. Okay, so you've tidied like <laughs> your mind this morning by going for yes. a walk to the train station. Yeah, I'm very um, introspective yeah. for this podcast, and ready to go. Great. So musical comedian. Like yeah. the, the first question is always both the easiest and the trickiest. Yes. Who are you? Of course, it's the it's the essential question that we, I hope we'll get some answers to over the next. <laughs> Five or six hours. Yes. And <laughs> I am 27. It might be 10. But yes, it, I feel like I I feel like I really fell into musical comedy. I feel like before musical comedy, like most musical comedians you've probably talked to, we all wanted to be musicians before yeah. we were musical comedians. It's very rare that you get people who wanted to be straight comedians straight and then become up. musical comedians. Yeah, I know. Like, oh, you know what? I gave really good solid joke writing a go, yeah. but you know what's better? Stretching uh, one joke over four minutes in yeah. a musical song. If, yeah. I, if, I, if I, I mean Dimitri Martin, maybe. Yeah, I think maybe. Dimitri did that. Yeah, but. or maybe people who do like, there are probably people who converted slam poetry to musical comedy, but I feel, yeah, for the most part, we're all... Not failed musicians. Well, fallen. Fallen musicians. musicians. Yeah. Musicians who think you're slumming it yeah. in an industry that it wasn't the oh, one that you... I don't think I'm <laughs> slumming it. I think I got very, very lucky that... I think my problem was when I was a musician, uh, I always felt really out of place as a musician anyway. To be fair, I did the pub circuit for the most part in the Central West. But 
I feel like when I was doing a gig with my original music, because before I was a comedian, I had like an EP. I did try to do that. I self-funded an EP and like recorded serious songs and like all Name this stuff. Name of the EP? No. <laughs> Name of the EP. Okay, fine. It's called Grey Into Blue. And if you listen to it, don't tell me what you think, because I was 22 at the time. And I it, all the songs now I listen to and I'm like, oh, God. Uh, Grey Into Blue. Yeah. Get, get used to that feeling, though. Yeah. Like, because that feeling you have of like being like absolutely revulsed by yourself yeah. at 22 <laughs> is a feeling that will repeat constantly yes. throughout your life. It so It keeps me awake yeah. that I was like, I told everyone I was going to write songs about where I was at at 22 and everyone around me said, that's a great idea, you should do that. And now I'm going to hold that against all of my friends and family. For no, it is life. a great idea, you should do it. You should never <laughs> stop doing something because you think you'll be embarrassed about it in the future. Because here's the one thing I guarantee you. <laughs> You will be embarrassed about everything you do in the future. Yeah. Whatever you're doing now, in five years' time, you will I'm look back on and go, what was up. I, did I admit oh. on a podcast that I just oh. leave my clothes on the floor yeah. and stuff them into a... Oh, I think it takes a lot to embarrass me, I yeah. reckon. So grey into blue. Yes, grey into blue. So, uh, name of the best song on it? Oh, I mean, probably grey into blue. There's a okay. ballad. There's a, I'm, a, I'm a slut for a ballad. Mm. And, uh, and was grey into blue there. about like a... Yeah, like a failed relationship or a, no, lost, it was, a lost love or like it, a, it was a about the world in general. Like what, I mean, what is Grey Into Blue? So Grey Into Blue was mm. a line. Old people swimming. <laughs> was it about the movie Cocoon? It was, <laughs> it was a lyric in the song which came about after drinking about six glasses of wine and listening to Joni yep. Mitchell's Blue. Yeah, okay. And I was like, that's, same, that's, that's fair. Yeah. Um, and then I wrote this sort of song and it's all about, it's kind of weird actually because the song is about feeling completely out of place and not knowing what I'm doing, which hasn't changed. Like, I'm 26 now, turning 27 this year. I still don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but um, the song has this line. It's so wanky, but it's like um, something like step into the uncertain kind of thing and turn grey into blue, which is it's just a shitty metaphor. Like, it's one of those things, like, you know when you hear English classes analysing an author's book and they're like, what colour were the windows and what does that mean about the main character and the author themselves is like... The windows were just blue yeah, because I've, they were blue. I've written books. Yeah, Sometimes yeah, yeah. you just got to fill in the we words. We're like, fuck it, fill the word count, yeah. I had to tell people there was windows. What else do you want? <laughs> I had to set the scene. <laughs> yeah, so it, honestly, it just helped the rhyme scheme, but yeah. it also jumped out as the title of the EP just because I hate titling things. That's still true. I hate titling shows. I titled this show based on what I was wearing, like my current comedy show is based what, on... Your, what is your current comedy show it's called, called? It's called Odd Sock. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's called that is because my agent was like, we need a name by 5 p.m. today. And I looked at my feet and I went, yeah, all right, I'm wearing Odd Socks. That's the name, Odd Sock. And but, but the it truth, just stuck. But you are saying, like, I mean, you say that maybe in the moment that was just what you thought. But yeah. at the same time, but we've only been talking for five minutes and the theme that you feel like, you know, occasionally you're on the outside of things mm. has come up. Tw several oh, times. I'm so the idea insecure. that you are an odd sock is <laughs> yeah. thematic to your work. So it doesn't, yeah. it's funny that you say that you just look down and, I, yeah. and that's what you came up with because on a, like on Real another level. level, it really feels like it speaks to how you see your place within things. Yeah. I mean, I do, I kind of do see myself as an outsider a lot of the time. Although I do think that that's, I don't know whether that's like a symptom of the way I think about myself and my work or whether that's actually like, I, I always think I'm an outsider and then immediately follow that thought with, that's not true. You're an idiot. Like, right. <laughs> like I, I look around, I'm like, I'm not that much outside of things. I'm doing this podcast. I have a lot of, you know, really great things that I've done in the last year or so. It depends life. on what you think the thing you're outside of is. Yeah. So I, is it, are you outside of the comedy industry? No. No. But I think growing up, I always thought mm. I would be outside of this. Like, I feel like when, where I grew up, how I grew up, you weren't, like, it just wasn't a thing to be 
famous. Okay, it wasn't so a thing did, to want to. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Bathurst. You actually talked to Angela Voipierre and I listened to that episode. Don't remember it. And no. I, was like, I was like, oh my God, I forgot Angela's from, because we know each other. And yeah. and it's so weird. Like we that have this joke. you Bathurst people. Well, there are so many of us. Mm. Like the more I do comedy, the more I meet people. I'm like, where'd you grow up? They're like, oh, Central West. And I'm like, what the hell is going on in the Central West where we all have enough trauma to make comedy careers out of it? It's quite funny um, that we all come from that sort of country, but you're very rural. So yes. I can't out-rural you. It's not a competition. No, oh, it is, though. But if it was a competition, I would definitely yeah, win. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely would win. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. I know, it's funny, uh, often... <laughs> Yeah, you know, like a sneering criticism of my work is that it's very inner city, you know, and I'm like... And you're like, I am from... I'm literally the most rural person. Yeah. Like, I dare you to name... Like, because it's always that thing too, you, people talk about like, where's the like mm. rural representation in Australian media? Yeah. And I'm like... We're everywhere. Fucking right here, mate. Yeah, exactly. Like, when we were doing the glass house, I mean, Hughesy's from Warrnambool, which yeah. might as well have been the big city to all of us. Yes. You know, Karim was from Koryong. Like I'm from like a place that's even smaller than Korea. It's just, it's just a shame that more of this work. I mean, growing up in Bathurst, even Bathurst, which is quite a massive rural hub now. Right. But when I was growing up there, it was probably about 40,000 people, which is like not that small when you really think about rural communities. But there wasn't a comedy scene, really. Like there was, was no... Was there a comedy club or no, something? No. no. We, had, we had something called Cabaret Kite, which was actually which was actually my first ever gig. I was 11 and I performed wow. a song. I just did a cover, mm. but they, the local theatre, the BMEC there, Bathurst Memorial Entertainment Centre, shout out, um, used to run this, this cabaret once every like three months or so. And because it was Bathurst, it was just an anything and everything cabaret because obviously you couldn't fill the whole thing with cabaret acts. Mm. There wasn't that many of us. Tough, yeah. So there was, you know, original music. There was, I think at one point there was a belly dancer. At one point I remember there was a, a guy dressed as a cat doing tissue because we were a uni town as well, so a lot of the theatre media kids would come well, and do stuff. Well, that's what I was going to say. And that's why I wondered whether there was a regular comedy scene of any kind because of the no. university. I wondered if there was... There might have been, but I didn't mm. know about it. And I started gigging really young too, so I wouldn't have even been let in to a lot of those gigs at rafters so and stuff. So when you say you started gigging young, what are you doing when you're gigging young? So I... I played piano from the age of five to the age of like 15 when I quit. I did the grade system, Amy B grade system. That was insane. Um, but my teacher was awesome and she used to just really make sure I was learning. And then once I was about, yeah, 11 or 12, my mum actually took me to something called a soiree. It was like a, a Bathurst soiree, which was in the foyer of the theatre. And it was essentially just an open mic night. And you wrote your name on a chalkboard and you performed whatever you wanted to perform. And there was literally no stakes. There was no prizes, nothing like that. And I didn't realise that gigs like that existed because the only gig, for a kid anyway, in Bathurst at the time was the Bathurst of Stetford, which was nightmare fuel. It's basically sticking kids in heats, basically. It's kind of like treating music like athletics. Like you put them in heats towards their age range and the best player wins first prize. And I remember I quit doing them after I performed it in a Stepford and I was marked down 12 points because I wasn't wearing a dress and my heel didn't touch the floor when I was pedaling. Uh -huh. And I was like, but the song sounded fine. How can fine. I enjoy this though? Yeah, exactly. If your heel isn't touching the floor. 100%. And I was what just. What are you, a whore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it was something like maybe next time a dress would be more appropriate. And I was wearing yeah. jeans and a t-shirt and also like. My mom didn't have the money to go out and buy a bloody nice dress every time I performed somewhere. Like that was so dumb to me. So we quit that. But then even the idea of making, I mean, look, I understand <laughs> that like when people are, are young and whatever, that, yeah. like the competitive elements can be something for people to work towards, like a dance competition yeah. or a ballot or well, whatever it is. Like I understand that. Me too. But, but 
There is part of me that just thinks that the arts lose so much every time we make it a competition. One hundred, And for me, it I learnt then and there, I am not competitive. Mm. I don't care about winning. I didn't care back then. But it's then. not the point either. Exactly. Like, I mean, Kurt Cobain wasn't the best guitar player, but like, you <laughs> know. He's like, infamous. Yeah, I mean, particularly in music, the arts. Like, yeah. it's not... The person who can do the best accents or has the best timing doesn't get to be the best comedian. The no. person who's the best actor in the world doesn't get to be the, the biggest actor. star in the world. Yeah. Like that's not how the arts work and in any way. it shouldn't ever work like that either. I just think I, I just don't benefit from being told, okay, this person that is your age has a similar interest to you and a similar ability to you. They're now your enemy. I am much more a fan of... If I'm in a room with somebody who has a common interest, I would much rather join them, make a band or be a friend or connect with them in a different way. I'd never, ever want to see anybody in any industry as my direct competitor. I know that that might be a drive, but it's not my drive. I don't. But also it's it's so rarely true. Yeah. It's a misleading. See, this is the thing about, I mean, awards in general yeah. for like in our industry that yeah. I have an issue with. And <laughs> I always feel like I'm allowed to be, yeah. I'm allowed to say this because I've won most awards. of them, right? Like, <laughs> I was going to say, it's good to have that standpoint after winning them all. Well, I, I think that if someone who hasn't won them says this, it sounds like sour grapes, it's, Yeah, right? it does, yeah. Well, so I feel like I have the yeah. right to be able to say, particularly as a person who's accepted, like nothing, like, I mean, winning an award yourself is the best. Yeah. Like, it's so lovely. Yeah. But I do not think that one person's individual feeling of the best is worth all the people who are nominated for award or not even nominated for the award feeling terrible or feeling yeah. that they've failed. Yeah. Like I would give back any award that I've ever had, <laughs> like, you know, for the sake of people, like Other they're people. not being an award in the first place. Yes. Because you know that it, like imagine having like one of the best 10 shows at the comedy festival mm. and then walking away from the last night thinking you failed because you didn't win the award you were nominated for. Like yeah. it's like that to me. <laughs> that's the problem with the awards. Yeah. Awards are lovely for people who win them. Yeah. They're terrible for everybody else. else. They ruin everything else. It's so weird. Like I feel like I when I did my first comedy fest last year, sorry, I sound so young. I don't what am I doing here? My career spent two years. But anyway, um, <laughs> when I did my mate, like my but first... you know, but this is I like to talk to people at various stages of their careers oh. because all this is is a snapshot. Oh, true. Plus, if I wait for you to be experienced enough to have you on the podcast, I'll be dead. Yeah, fair <laughs> so- enough. It's going to take a while. <laughs> but yeah, last year I entered my first comedy festival and I, I had I literally, I cannot stress enough how little I knew. Like I just, I'd only ever been to Melbourne once, which was the year before as like a sort of spectator. I did, to I did, the festival though? To the festival, yeah. yeah. Um, and I went there to do like a spot and I stayed a couple of days and it it's nothing like doing a show every single night. And when I did it last year, it was just this unbelievable roller coaster. And I went in not knowing there were even awards to win. I didn't know that there was like this whole nomination process. I didn't know there was a judging process. I didn't know anything about reviewers or how to get them in or like how to please them or any of that. I was just stoked that A, the world had stopped shutting down enough for me to do a show. And B, to me, because I'd sort of come up online it was a real test of like, am I even good at this? Like, am I even, is this even what I am good at? I still, people laugh when I say that because they're like, oh, how do you not know if you're good at performing? I'm like, no, I, I knew I liked performing. I just, comedy is a different thing to me to music. It's like, I want people to laugh every, you know, 30 seconds, like any comedian. And I, until Melbourne last year, really, and Adelaide last year, I had no idea if I was funny. Like, I really didn't know if I was funny at all. And then it was such a nice experience to have 
crowds come in and be like, oh, that was funny. But there were also some nights I sold out my Melbourne run last year. And it's crazy the feeling of being like, hell yeah, sold out, going to go out there. It's going to be great. Everyone's going to love me. It's and you go out and it's night. like a memorial. Yeah. <laughs> like there was How some could this nights, possibly go wrong? It's sold out. So weird. And like some nights <laughs> a full house just giving you absolutely nothing. It humbles you quicker than any award nom ever could. Like I had just... a night during the comedy festival this year where oh. Saturday night, sold out, 1,000 people, you know what I mean? We were like, like, hell yeah. Oh, here we go. <laughs> This will be great. They clearly know what they're buying a ticket for. I remember saying to Tommy Little after the show, I said, you know you're in trouble when they don't clap for you to get all the way to the microphone. Oh. <laughs> like, you know, you're like, you were so interested in this show that you bought a ticket, yep. parked, got yep. here, sat down, Went but the not trouble. quite enough to clap all the way it's, to the microphone. It always feels like you have to earn it so much more. For me, I always start, I'm going to, I think I'm going to change this now with my next yep. show whenever it is, because I always start with a song. Mm-hmm. And I can tell it's an awful way of knowing, but within literally five seconds, if the crowd's going to be good or not. Because when a song's starting and then you emerge on stage, the people who like you are instantly going to do this. Mm -hmm. And they're going to go, what's this song? And there's going to be that buzz in the room. The people who don't like you, the song's just sort of starting. Nothing makes that moment of walking to a microphone more awkward than having to then sing a whole three-minute song after it. (laughs) Because you're like, well, if you don't like music, you're in the wrong place. Like there are some people you just... It's good to know early on, I suppose. And sometimes you just think, God, these people have bought a ticket and thought I was straight up stand up, I think. Mm. And I think they saw the piano and immediately recoiled. Like, just, oh, God, it's, oh, it's musical. Oh, it's camp. Oh, it's theatre. Oh, I hate this. And that's what's so funny. I just go, How I mean, do but you? wasn't your show called I Guess My Keyboard Broke? Oh, yeah, last year it was called I Hope My yeah, Keyboard Doesn't hope Break. My ke- I Hope My Keyboard yeah. Doesn't Break. Yeah, okay. and there were still some people who were like, I didn't, didn't realize you were a musical. It's in the title. <laughs> I'm like, I hope it doesn't break. Surrounded yeah. by pianos. What are you? Well, I'm going to whip out a guitar. What do you think I'm going to do? Like, but um, but yeah, this okay, year. Okay, so, so that's interesting to me though. That this idea of because this is one of my you know things that I find interesting. I was talking to someone during the comedy festival who mm. like he works at the venue that I play every oh, year at the right. comedy festival, and they said, "Oh, so you wrote a book? You know that must be amazing." And uh, you know all these sort of things, and I'm like, I said, writing a book. <laughs> Like I said, you send it off, but I don't know. Like people might like it, people yeah. might not like it. I don't know if they're laughing or not laughing or whatever, but I'm never going to know. Yeah. Like whereas like this. Stage, yeah. You go out there, you and just know straight away. You know, yeah. Like there's no way for you to go, oh, yeah, no. The, I, like, I'm <laughs> sure it's it gone now. really well. Like, Yeah. I think for me it was the the overwhelming love of being on stage always outweighs what the crowd think for me, which is a very selfish outlook because it's not what you're supposed to do in comedy. In comedy, you're supposed to 100% rely on your audience to to fix your gear, really. Not true. Like, oh, you don't think? No. You don't think you base your jokes on what the audience respond to? Mm, I think sometimes you do, but I'm not sure that that is the role always. of the audience. Like, ah. I, I feel like in some ways, like, so this is where it becomes. Yeah. yeah is, I know, I'm feeling it. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> so, like, Letting your audience decide what the jokes are is the equivalent of letting a focus group decide what the movie ending should right. be, right? Like you've got to take them into consideration. Yeah. But at the same time, I like to think with comedy in particular, like, mm. and look, again, like I'm bringing up a lot of problematic men like on this <laughs> podcast and and it's hard not to yeah. <laughs> because most Probably men Australia. are problematic, yeah, myself included. True. Yeah. But um, Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, his big thing was it's not the customer's job to know what they want. Right. And I think he was right. You know, like the reason that he was able to invent, he, he imagined things or, you know, employed people to imagine things (laughs) that 
weren't what if you asked a group of people what they wanted. They wouldn't have said it. They wouldn't have said that thing. And I think as a comedian, it is your job to, yes, absolutely take into account some of the needs of the audience, but you shouldn't be letting them design the show. Yeah. Like that is not the job. So uh, the idea that you say that it's selfish up there that you've got – no, I think the job is for you to create something that you think is worth seeing and that is entertaining and then – convince the audience to get on board with the fact that it's entertaining. It is. It is. I mean, I do think with my first show, I went really broad with my topics because of that exact fear of like, I just want people to get on board as quickly as possible. I have no idea if I'm good at this. So I, you know, I hit topics like how I felt about the housing crisis and climate change and having kids and like all of these really, really broad topics that a lot of people could relate to. And I think people not struggled, but a lot of older people this year, this show that I did, Odd Sock, just now through the festival season, I'm doing it in Sydney soon, is quite young. It's really quite niche and it's quite young because it's. I wrote it very, very quickly compared to my first show. And it's got jokes in there that I see 25-year-olds lose their mind at and everyone else just look around the room like, I don't get that, I don't understand. And I've had to really grapple with, oh, should I cut that joke or should I leave it in because it's so worth the crazy laughter I get from that one or two people in the front row. Like it's, I mean, if if there's ever something that is like landing that hard with, with one person, then there's something in that. Yeah. And I've kept it in and I think it's been a real, I've had to really push through that feeling of, oh, I just want to cut half these jokes because some people aren't getting them. And I've, I have cut through that and I think it's it's a lot more fun for me to be on stage and be like, I don't know what's going to happen tonight. I have no idea how the crowd's going to react. And sometimes they'll lose their mind and sometimes it'll be more confused but happy applaud, um, which is sort of what I got. But I did, have a, I, I did have a far more political song in this second show. I got a bit braver with my opinions, I think. And that has, like, people either love it or they hate it which is because I, I hit at the cop industry. So it's a song about police and about how I, I believe that with more training we could weed out some of the people who are in it for the wrong reasons, which is the whole mm, base of the joke. What a controversial opinion I know, it's have. not. I, that's what I thought when I wrote it. I was like, this is not that mm. outlandish. But I have received hate mail during my show about that song because <laughs> I have made the mistake of being like, this show is phone-friendly. Social media yeah. is a big marketing tool. Please take photos, take videos, right. message me if you want. I don't really care. And people do. I got, yeah, I got a really really mean message saying I was a disgusting excuse for a person and stuff. What, because you were slightly anti-bad cop? Slightly anti-bad cop, you know, that's all it took. So it's I mean, here's what I will tell you, that like (laughs) I have dealt with like criminal lawyers in my time and the one thing they all tell me is absolutely 100% do not trust the police. 100%. Like I've had good and bad dealings with police over my life. And like, I'm certainly not suggesting that, like I've met really great cops who clearly are dedicated to, (laughs) you know, trying to do their job for the right reasons. And I've met some people who are absolutely not that as well. So the idea that you in any Uh, way, but they are like the military. It's yeah, protected species, right? Very fun. Like because they have an important role and there is an element of sacrifice and it's part of the mythology around it because yeah. if you're going to convince people to do a very dangerous job, you've also got to convince them to buy into the mythology yes. around the fact that you're going to pay them not a great wage to possibly get shot at and yeah. like have to do these sort of things. So like then when there are problems with the military. It's hard to critique. Right. Because nobody wants to believe that there's holes in a system. Mm, that and somebody also, we might have like given a Victoria Cross to might also be like, you know, trying to destroy guy? his computer. Yeah. And, like, Hiding a lunchbox with a USB in it. Yeah. Yeah. So those I, issues, like it, it is hard for some people to divorce them in their mind. Mm. But this is a good example of how you can't listen to your audience. Yeah. Because the point you're making 
if you know, the way you represented that point to me is yeah. an absolutely valid point. It's not even edgy or controversial in the way that, I mean, yeah. it is clearly to some people, yes. but as an opinion, that's I, just a pretty solid opinion. I also wonder, though, if the way I was presented... Because, I mean, I obviously, I'm, I'm a young woman. I dress quite outlandishly in my shows. I, you know, wear colourful earrings and a mesh shirt, you know, and I present. A lot of people find musical comedy, particularly with a political angle, smug. Like, you know, well, you know, like a lot of the critique, I put the song online, mistake number one, never <laughs> do that. Um, but a lot of the critique I got was, mm. you know, oh, everyone hates the police until you need them. And it's this assumption that, like, somebody who dresses like an inner city lefty sip, latte sipping hippie, you know, has never needed. And I'm like, if you fucking knew how often I needed them as a kid or how often we dealt with them as a kid and they did nothing, particularly in a regional town in the early thousands, late 90s, like, why do you think I'm making the critique? Like, that's exactly, like, I, it's just this assumption that when you're in your 20s and you're a young woman presenting a point, so it's not even, I mean, to a comedian, it's not even that edgy, but to an average punter, you know, who do you think you are? Oh, if you think you're so good, you do it better. And I'm kind of like, the whole point is that the system could be better. The system based, could be better. Based on All my I'm life is lived they experience. Could do it better. Exactly. Also, there's literally so much evidence <laughs> yes. that they could do it better. 100%. There's been internal reviews. There's yeah. on the report records of so many mis like you know, criminal like instances by police. Like yep. The idea that you don't want to improve that? Yeah, exactly. Because here's the thing. When you need the cops, I'd like a good cop. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly <laughs> the point. Yes. I have I have a batshit story that I hope my mum is okay with me telling about the police. But basically, oh, she's going to – I'll refer to you later. Okay. She, I think she'll be All fine. Right. My mum was waiting for me to bust up. Where I grew up with my mum, so my parents are divorced, but my it's quite a unique situation. I lived predominantly with my mum. And she wasn't very well off. She's a social worker. She worked in disability for 25 years and now she's in aged care, which she loves because she's a knitter and she organises all the recreation stuff. Anyway, that's not the point. We grew up in a really quite beat up area of Bathurst called Kelso, um, which people would laugh at now because there are literally rich estates, you know, right. rolling meadows. Yes, love yeah. it. But back when I was growing up there, it was quite beat up where I was growing up. And my bus stop was right in front of the corner shop. Classic. My mum used to wait there for me after work and pick me up and drive me home, even though we lived about... Two blocks away, my mum was like, I will pick you up, we will drive home because it was that kind of neighbourhood. And I was coming home from primary school and my mum was waiting in the car and she had, I don't think she had her window down, but I think she had her doors unlocked because she's crazy. And <laughs> this person came up, opened her door, straight up went to steal a handbag, which is like awful. But my mum's my mum. She grew up in Forbes and then Wagga and then Tamworth and now Bathurst. So she's proper country and won't take any shit. So she's tried to steal this handbag back and she broke her finger in the process. And so I get in the car after this has happened. I have no idea. And mum just very calmly is like, we have to stop somewhere first. And I'm thinking, okay, because, you, you know, I'm nine. I don't really care. She's driven to the police station. I'm putting dots together being like, what has happened here? And she walks into the police station and to just straight away give a report because it's just happened. And she's like, I know how this works. Straight up giving a report and rather than listen to her, they first of all treated her like she was crazy and she parked in a police detective parking spot. So then a detective waltzed in while she's giving this report who was like, who the fuck parked in the detective parking spot? That's not okay. And mum's takeaway from this whole thing was they didn't catch the person and also she was more reprimanded for parking in a police detective park spot then she was helped for reporting a crime that had just happened. And also she got no happened compensation. Yeah. Broke her finger, had to yeah. go to hospital. Somebody tried to rob her and, like, assaulted her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just not, no empathy at all for the fact that yeah. 
Anyway, it's, until, and until that's you what I mean. Them. Exactly. I mean, look, this is a much lighter story in some ways, but <laughs> very similar, which is like my car was stolen. Yeah. And I remember ringing the police and I used to like joke about this in my stand-up, but literally I was like, hey, my car got stolen. What do I need to do? And they were, like literally the guy was basically, he well, said, you're going to have to buy a new car. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm it's like, just like, what's the point not, of you? Hang on. This, I thought this was. <laughs> your job. Here are my number plates. Please go looking for yeah. my car. Just at least. Pretend yeah. to have a look. Our our home also. God, this is my They're mom. like, have you posted something on Facebook? I'm yeah, like, is yeah, it I have. Is this the car? Will you do something? Yeah. Was, what kind of car was it? Was it robbable? Yeah. Um, I yeah, drive a 99 yeah. Commodore for that exact reason. But our house also in, in this sort of beat up area got robbed about three times in six months, which is like, at that point, it's annoying. The third time you're like, oh my God. I remember yeah. vividly they stole my Scooby-Doo 2 DVD. I was so upset about that. Because I was a kid, so, you know, you kind of do this thing where this is normal. Like, for me, I was like, oh, this is just how houses work. Right. People Occasionally somebody's going to just come in and take and your Scooby-Doo too. Yeah. I was so angry about it. Um, I mean, at least, see, the police at least had a lead there. It's someone who's seen Scooby-Doo. <laughs> but the thing was, like, they would come over and they'd come over about four hours after it's so after we've discovered it. And then they'd dust for, and then be like, oh, we can't find any fingerprints. I'm like, yeah, you think? It's because they're gone. Like, and... You just don't, like, they're just, and particularly in that area, for many, many people who I know lived in the same area, they just didn't care. They were like, well, you live here, yeah. so it's going to happen. You are not the part of society that we are employed yeah. to protect. If we were in the now gentrified mansion area, I'm sure mm. there'd be a bloody cavalry, but it's, it's, it, it so, yeah. it, so this is your genuine life experience. Yeah. You then, at age 26, nearly 27, write a, write a song that is, you know, that reflects that. Yeah. So this is where feedback becomes an interesting thing. Yes. So this is what we've talked about, right? Like the majority of your original career was built online. Yeah. Online, absolutely, you have to like be aware of the feedback. That yeah. is how you build an audience online. It's about what people are saying, yeah. what they're responding to, what they're not responding to. Yep. But then you take it out of that bubble. Like you said, you don't even know if this is really going to connect with yeah. people. Like is this going to you know, work? And you take it out into this broader world. And now you have to wrestle with the idea because I've heard you say it a few times already, which yes. is like, people didn't like this. People didn't like yeah. that. They reacted this way to this. So how then, because <laughs> I do think this particularly of people of your generation yes. is that so much of your career is going to rely on online. Yeah. You know? Oh, for sure. It's, it's You can't ignore it. Yeah. Or it's almost impossible to ignore. It's literally a career platform. Like and you have to treat it like an so office. So then how do you like... How do you deal with feedback? How do you know what is relevant feedback? How do you know what is feedback worth consuming? Like, I, do you have a policy to that? Like, I still struggle so hard with this. Like, I feel like because places like Instagram and TikTok and all of these video platforms that can be broadcast to the biggest possible test group, I still struggle with getting a comment that just comes from a genuinely mean place from somebody I've never met. I still look at them all. I, like I, 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 it's, and my partner has had to be like, Gabby, you, like, this doesn't matter. The majority of people are in support of this. Your audiences are mostly in support. I feel like I've, I've gotten a lot better in the, literally the last couple of weeks of just posting something and then just not looking. Okay, that's sort of what I've had to do now, particularly if it's more ouchy kind of political stuff. Not even that ouchy, but I've had to really – monitor my like basically I have to put that barricade up myself because there's not a lot of help for that on a lot of these apps you can't really I mean you can filter words and stuff but how do you know what, what context of words like people are like oh just filter out like bad 
And I'm like, what if somebody was saying bad in a good way? Like, what if somebody uses it in a sentence that they mean supportively? Like, this is as iconic as Michael Jackson's <laughs> bad. No, no, yeah, that's yeah, bad. Yeah, that's like, still yeah. bad. <laughs> like, but you never know how someone's going to say something. Of I feel like I value in the room feedback a lot more. Um, particularly from my peers, I feel like I send a lot of my songs out. Like, like this is the thing. Even the way I do comedy is so removed from the live club scene that probably you're more used to. In the way of, I test my songs by sending the MP3 demos to my comedic friends, okay, and telling them to email me back with what so, they think. So, so you're sit. So, how does a like? Let's talk about. I like this. This is <laughs> this is a fun area. So, does it start with an idea? Does it start with like? A song, like, does it start with, like, a broad concept? Does it start with a joke? Is it different for every time? It's, like, it, where, where, do you, where do you get your ideas? <laughs> <laughs> what, what a nice detailed yeah. and, and, and niche question. Um, I think for me it's different every time. The writing process, I mean, the thing I struggled with the second show, the first show a lot of those songs came out in about five minutes because yeah. I just realised that comedy was a thing and these mm-hmm. ideas have been swirling around my head for months. And yeah. I, when I went to write the ideas down, it was like... Brrr. And those are the best songs to write. But it's your first album. It's all yeah. the things you've thought about. And you're like, everything and I've ever also, wanted to say. You've never said anything else. Exactly. And so you have a blank slate mm-hmm. and you can just start and go, I'm going to say everything. Say everything. Oh, say every- shit. They want say- me to say some other things. Yeah. Or they want me to go more into detail about this one niche pocket of this one idea. And, and that was really hard. So the second show was a lot, I had to treat it a lot more like, a lot more like work. Yeah. Which was like every day. An exercise that still stays with me from when I was a teenager is like looking at the paper or looking at the online news now, who's looking at the paper, um, and finding a news story and writing like a three-minute song about something you read, which is like a really good exercise for anybody anyway, just writing a joke about something you read, which is a lot of what we do on Twitter, really. So I sort of started doing that. Nothing was really hitting. I feel like when something's political, it comes out a lot quicker because I'm quite opinionated even though I have no research skills, which is a terrible thing. The best way to be opinionated. Well... It is. Once you research things, you really, like, you find there's a lot of nuance and gray areas. Exactly. It's very hard to have a firm opinion. And it's hard to write a musical comedy song and also introduce nuance because it's like, I have three minutes and a stupid tune to fit every idea about this thing in. So it's also trying to not cheat by. I just, it's hard to weigh up, like, I I want my songs to always be not only funny, obviously, and maybe sometimes really silly, but musically, I want them to actually sound good, you know, because I want to enjoy singing them night Mm -hmm. after night after night, and I love music, so it's hard sometimes when I have, like, I mean, the Police song is a great example. That is the easiest thing to play musically. It's literally just a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. It's so lazy in my head. I always thought that was the laziest song, but that's the one that people walk away and go, oh, that song. And I'm like, what do you mean? I have like a three-minute ballad about the feeling of sobering up at three in the morning that's in 3-4 and it's all this, oh, it's all about 3 a.m. and I wrote it in 3-4 and everyone's going to draw these Taylor Swift-esque mm-hmm. correlations between all of these hints I'm dropping. No one's doing that for no, musical I'm comedy. Doing that. No one's doing that. No one's really doing that for much other than Taylor Swift. Yeah, true. She's got a crazy army. But yeah. I, I feel like I always want them to be fun musically because it's like you have to sing them every single night and nobody wants to sing shit songs every single night for a month or for two months or for two weeks, you know. So Okay. So, yeah. So, so yeah, it's often so, a bit of both. I feel yeah. like the music will often come first. Mm-hmm. Like the vibe. If I if I think of what the genre of the song is, that always happens first. And then I go, what will this be about? Often my funk numbers end up being about some creepy love situation. That feels right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first time I wrote this sort of funk number about house sitting and I, it's all about the housing market and like how 
I would look at it, I'd do some crowd work with an audience member and be like, I'm going to present a song to you. I hope it's not that weird. And then this really gross 70s, like, started coming in and the whole, it aids the joke about the housing crisis is so bad. I'm going to house sit for the rest of my life and just jump from mansion to mansion. That's the idea. The second time I wrote a funk song, it was all about Andrew Garfield. It's four and a half minutes long and it's literally just about him. And that's what I mean. Like the people who get that song get it. And the people who don't get that song just look at me bewildered for four and a half minutes. So Andrew Garfield, the Spider-Man. Yes. Okay. One, one of the One thrice. of the Spider-Man. Well, one of the four now. The, yeah. How many are there? The multiple. Tom Holland. Uh, yes. Tom uh, Holland. Uh, old guy who always looks Toby young. Maguire. Toby Maguire. That's who <laughs> I'm talking about. That I remembered when you said old guy that always looks young. Um, and there's also the voice of Miles Morales from uh, Into the true. Spider-Verse that movie, is good which part. I wish I knew the name of. Uh, I don't know the name of him. I don't know. No. Voice artist, that. man. Yeah. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> be a celebrity. Yeah. Be a real celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. Yeah. Sorry. You, so you're talking tangent. about, yeah. No, no. They're good. This is what the show's all about. Tangent. So I like a tangent. So. <laughs> And I feel like I've learned a lot about it already. Oh. But I, I like this idea of, I guess, the, you know, the first show being broad and the second one being more niche. Yeah. And, and, you know, so you start to write about things maybe that the first time it's very much like, hello world, here I am. Yeah. Whereas the second one, it starts to be about like, this is, oh, this is actually a bit more my world. Like, yeah. you know. Yeah. I felt, a lot, I felt a lot better about being mm. a lot more selfish about it. Like I felt... I sort of cared, oh, it's going to sound bad. I cared less about, oh, is people, are people going to relate to this? I think the relatability was the main thing. I also, it's a chip on my shoulder from online stuff, you know, was one of the main support sort of um, comments I would get. It's like, oh, this is so relatable. Your content is so relatable. And like oh, all comedy is relatable to someone. I feel like the second show I just sort of went, you know what, this is relatable to me. And if it's relatable to me, someone at least one other person is going to find this somewhat resemblant of their own life. Mm. And um, relatability is also a trap. Like, yeah, hundred percent. Because if, so there are some like, you know, aspects of comedy because mm. this like idea that comedy needs to be relatable. Nish Kumar and I had a chat yeah. about this, but it's something that I've been thinking about for years, which yeah. is like, there is a style of relatable comedy. Yes. Yeah. You know, don't we all do this? Yeah. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. This. I hate it when this. Yeah. But I, but, but I hate it when this is different to don't we all hate it when this, yeah, right? Yeah, true. Like that's relatable. Like yeah. that's somebody trying to say, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, his style of comedy <laughs> is we all do this or we all think this when we look at a phone or we yeah. all do this, right? That's trying to be relatable. Yeah. But there's another part of comedy that is absolutely they're laughing because it's unrelatable. Yes. Because the way that you've handled that situation or your perspective on it. It's so batshit and yeah. removed from there. I've got a bit about editing Roald Dahl books like in my <laughs> show that I imagine not one person who's seen my show has related to. No, but they find it funny. Yeah, because it's my, like, th yeah. the point is it's that what I think and the argument that I'm making, it doesn't, Yeah. like, this idea that comedy in some way to be successful needs to be relatable is something that I think is one of the big comedy myths. I think it's only been enhanced by internet culture. Mm. I think because, you know, people measure success now based on, which is also the same as the awards mm. thing, you know, measuring success based on followership or, yeah. you know, like radius or whatever. Numbers have never been the... So the problem with measuring anything <laughs> by numbers is that numbers don't measure, like, how much someone loves something. Yeah. Right? So you could have a show like, I don't know, let's just say just to pick two... Two shows, um, 
you could like let's what's a good small niche show that people like <laughs> Barry. Yeah. Okay, Barry. Not a huge show, but yeah. a very love show, Barry. Yeah. Versus like a you know some huge franchise show NCIS that's yeah. been playing for thirty years. God, thirty right? years too long. But this is the point, right? For some people, it's yeah. like. The, 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 if you measure them just based on audience and numbers and where it goes and whatever, there yeah. is absolutely no way in the world that NCIS isn't the most successful show, like, and Barry isn't even on the uh, radar. On the radar, yeah. But for the people who love Barry. They so love it. They're yeah. loyal to it. Right? Yeah. And so sometimes you got to work out if you're NCIS or Barry <laughs> as well, you know? <laughs> I'm going to wake up and tell myself that. Yeah. I'll be like, am I NCIS today or Barry today? And, and the problem is there's not – neither of those are wrong. Yeah. But you've got to know what you're measuring yourself against. So, like, you can't wake up in the morning and be making Barry and be angry <laughs> that you're not, not getting NCIS numbers. That's, exactly. I think that's the that trick, is, right? That is actually a very heartwarming thought because I struggle with that a lot. I feel like I've never – I see a lot of comedy during festivals um, now. The first year I did it, I didn't mm. because COVID was so rampant. I, and that really affected my time. But this this year I've been making a point to while I'm doing a festival, I'm actually going to go and consume as much as I can because it's the only way to get better in my eyes is to watch other people and then get a little bit jealous but mostly learn from what they're doing. And you only watch so many. There was so much musical comedy this year at Melbourne Comedy Festival. I don't know if you noticed. There was literally – it was like one to ten comedians was a musical comedian, which was a lot to me. Feels like too many. Actually. <laughs> right. How now many, that, how many the, songs can be now written? Now that you do the, state, yeah. you do the stats, yeah, I'm like, you know too what? Too many. Yeah, too many. <laughs> no, I think never enough. But also – One in 20 maybe. Let's you, call them back a little. You see someone do a show <laughs> that's so well written, uh-huh. so has a narrative arc. I've always struggled with a narrative mm-hmm. without making it like a musical, like – Having a narrative arc without having a character is so clever and I can't do it yet, yet. Um, But I've watched so much musical comedy that was better than my own. And I'm not saying that to be like, "Mm, they were better than me. I mean, genuinely, of course they were better than me. It was by people who had been in the industry. Did you see Gillian's show? I did. I had the luxury of sharing a green room with Gillian the entire month. Well, brilliant. So like, I mean, for example, someone who like, I mean, you know, like won all the awards really. Yeah. I Um, I told her this every, every, I saw that show in the first week and I was like, you're winning everything. And she was like, nah. And I'm like, you're winning Everything. Did you see Jordan Gray's show? Yes, I saw it twice. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to see that show in Edinburgh last year in a room of like 60 people. And then I saw it again. I took my mum this time because um, I knew my mum would love it. And unbelievably, unbelievably good. Just really good joke writing, strong comedy. Two shows that immediately come to mind when you talk about that idea of yeah. that they are both musical comedy shows. Yes. It, like in a way. Yeah. Like, you know, there is a musicality to both of them. 100%. And like, you know, I mean, like. Incredibly talented. But not. All that they're about, no. like themes, like the you know, writing. playing with different things, like a, con- yeah. a construction to what the show is outside the fact that they have good songs exactly. or like whatever. Exactly, you know? and I think for me at the moment where I'm at is like, I think my songs are strong, but for me because I don't know who I am as a comedian yet, I'm still figuring that out, which a lot of people struggle with, I think, because I did so much online, and I think when I started doing live shows, everyone was kind of like, oh, but you've been doing this for ages. I'm like, I actually. Haven't. I really haven't. I'm very new and I'm constantly learning. And watching shows like Jill's or Michelle Brazier's or Jordan Gray's, you just, you go, oh my God, how do I do that? And then you talk to them and they're like, it's just experience. It's lived experience. And you just have to keep doing it. Keep doing the art, keep learning, keep writing. And that's the part I struggle with so much because I'm sitting here going, God, I feel like I have a lot of lived experience, but I'm only 26 and I've only been doing comedy for like two years. 
So I don't, I just don't, I have to catch up and I can't catch, I physically can't catch up unless I age 15 years in the next like two minutes. I've mentioned <laughs> this a few times on the show, but I went and saw, um, among the other shows that I saw at the festival, I went and saw Lewis Garnham's show in the yes. Regent Room. Yes. And uh, the Regent Room was the first place that I did when oh. I did the festival. But he's wow. on He's on stage, he's 27, he's just a similar age to you. He's yeah. talking about, you know. 20, being 27 and all this lived experience that he has. And like, I'm doing the math in my head as I sit there in the room and I'm like, oh, when I was standing there on stage telling my little stories, uh, you weren't born. You know, like, I mean, I've done that festival for 27 yeah. years. So like that idea of, well, actually for 28, whatever it is, wow. I, like numbers are numbers. But yeah. like the point being that like, you know, his whole life has happened in the time that I've been learning my comic trade. Yes. Like, you know, he wasn't, he's gone from not being born to standing on this stage doing, <laughs> doing a show, show complaining about being 27. <laughs> I, I have a joke in my show where I'm about to do this ballad because I always throw a ballad into my shows, yeah. whether or not the audience wants it. I just love ballads. I love mm -hmm. them. I'm a slut for them. What can I say? Um, but, but right before the song, I sort of say like, you know, I'm playing and I say, oh, I've been getting really reflective on my life lately. And I stop and I just laugh because I did this as an improv bit in the first show and it's just stuck, which was, sorry, anyone over the age of 26 in the room just thought to themselves, oh, my God, fuck you. <laughs> and I keep going and it gets this laugh because I cannot be reflective of my life on a stage without also acknowledging I am such a baby in this space, particularly comedy. I feel like music's one thing and then comedy's another. Sure. I feel like we can all start comedy a little bit later. Then again, there's no real age to anything. No. But I do feel, I feel a lot less prepared in the comedy space than I do in the music space. And yeah. I think I, it's much better to acknowledge how unprepared I feel, but it's going to get old eventually. I mean, even already people are like, you're good, stop it. Like, you can do this. Stop saying you can't. I know, but you, you but, only get a small amount of time to say that you can't. Exactly. So I'm, you I'm might as well use it, it up. for all it's worth, 100%. Yeah. And then you can be done with that. Yeah. And look, of course, every single person in their audience is rolling their eyes at any comedian who complains <laughs> about the fact that they're nearly 30 or they're <laughs> yeah, nearly yeah. whatever. Like, oh, shut up. But we also all did it. Yeah. Like, we've all been there. Yeah. That's what I loved about, so let's talk about Bo Burnham. Oh, um, yeah. So... Inside? Like inside. Mm. When when Bo was like, so there's a song about like turning 30. Turning 30. Great song. And it's great because it's both all the complaints about being <laughs> turning 30, but there's a real self-awareness about the yes. fact that this is also a thing that people who are about to turn 30 complain about. He and I really thought it was really that. well handled. Yeah. He really nails balance of yeah. being self-aware <laughs> and also saying something that makes you go, I would never do that. Yeah. He's one of those people that like, he'll do something that's not relatable, but makes you think it is. I listened to that those those songs in Inside. Inside was really the first special I saw of Bo, and so okay. So I wanted to talk about Bo in general because yeah. I just was interested in whether because you're talking about someone who clearly yes. started online, online and has transitioned to doing live stuff, but has in mm. his own way very much struggled with the like you know yeah. like what it means to be in front of a live audience or yeah, and you know that's very much part of his work. But yes, I think Inside and I. It, my mind hasn't changed about this. Yeah. Like, you know, because sometimes you get swept up in the moment of something and you mm. think, oh, this is like genius, genius and brilliant and, yeah. and whatever else it is. But maybe, you know, a year from now or two years from now, I'll look back on it and uh, It'll be think it wasn't the case. You know, yeah. I was swept up in the moment. You know, it came along at the right time. But no. I rewatched it recently because funnily enough, my show this year, it kind of was like a weird, this will sound like the weirdest thing to say, but in my mind, it was literally kind of a companion piece to that show. Yeah. Because my show was very much about the idea of everybody going back outside again. Yes. And me being a bit more stuck inside for a bunch of reasons yeah. and being a bit scared. Of, and so it kind of, so I rewatched it. In. 
just to sort of, I don't know, for whatever reason, yeah, I rewatched it, you know. And I just, again, was just watching it going, this is, like, I mean, this it's amazing. Yeah. It's an amazing piece of work and comedy and art. I also just think the editing on that alone yeah. wins an award for me because I just, I just think what I love about that special is because he was because we were all not able to do stage work, he made a special based on not being able. Like it's weird how the limitation actually expands what it means to be a comedy special. Like it was, it had thematic travel, it had A to B narrative, it had time jumps, it had really funny bits because of the editing. I feel like you can't do that on a stage. There were so many jokes, like the Jeffrey Bezos songs. Uh, funny because they're funny, but they're also funny because they get so aggressively Be- cut off. Because they stop. Yeah, they stop. Yeah, they they're, they're he not just really screams into your mic and then they're cut off and you're laughing. Comedies, like it's not like here's my three minutes. No, you it's couldn't like, do that song on stage. And almost as if, like also even with the premise of those songs, it's like I'm not going to bother being, like you all know I'm clever yeah. and could do something more clever than <laughs> this, but I'm not going to. Exactly. On and, purpose. And he really, I think, while I think that special that special is absolute genius. It's hard to watch, I think, for me because, well, this sounds so wanky. It's hard to watch for me because that is the special that you know you're watching somebody come into exactly what they do originally then. I can't think of any other special that I've seen that feels the way that made me feel and also is edited in such a way, thought about so closely. I just... And, and it kind of makes you angry because you're like, God, oh, God. <laughs> Made me want to quit comedy yeah, when I first saw exactly. it. exactly. Like, like, it's like, fuck, I just wish I could do that. Like, I wish why, I had done that. I can't do any of this and I love it. Yes. Yeah, so Bo Burnham, like, obviously, you know, someone who I... You know, I'm an incredible comedian, but, <laughs> but like, you know, even in his work, mm. you know, talks about this idea of like what it was like to go from that kid, you know, singing songs in his bedroom to, you know, being this artist who's out there in the world. And it just strikes me that there must be at least some similarities when you watch someone like Bo, there must be some, you look at that and go, what lessons can I learn from this? Or what part of this story is relevant to, to me? There are, I think, well, for me, I mean... I'm not a gr- – <laughs> I started online, but I'm not sure that that would be the case if a pandemic hadn't happened. Uh-huh. Like, and, Interesting. But it's, it's, so tell me about that then. Well, it's weird because if a pandemic hadn't happened, I'd probably still be teaching music out of my house and living in Bathurst and doing pub gigs on the weekend. I feel like that is exactly what I would still be doing, um, trying to make a music career work. So how did the pandemic – like what happened? <laughs> well, basically my work got shut down and I'm a very – I'm a, I'm a bad, bored person. I can't be bored. I don't like it. I find my own fun a lot of the time. Um, so when all my work got shut down, I wasn't doing gigs and even the students weren't able to come to my house for about a month there. Um, so I was in my pajamas. I was doing Zoom lessons as we all bloody were, which don't work, by the way. If you've got a, or if you had a kid that was doing Zoom music lessons, I'd pray for you. That would have sucked. Um, but I started watching the news because I'm quite engaged with the news. I always have been. And so much batshit stuff was being said in the news at that time because nobody knew what was going on. Nobody, nobody, not even the most intelligent thinker on the planet knew what the hell was happening during that time. And so we had so many naffs, like, you know, Scott Morrison saying bar A instead of bar and like just little things that became big because everyone was suddenly watching the news because nobody had anything better to do. And so 
when I was getting quite angry and fed up and just frustrated and just sad at this sort of world that we were losing, a lot of people looked at those first couple of months of the pandemic and they were like, oh, it was great. I baked bread and I needed it. I was, I was like, what is happening? What is going to happen? How do I deal with this information? And so I had to make it funny. And the way I was doing that just completely for myself was putting verbatim quotes from either politics or news naff, like, sorry, news gaffes, just things that I found to music. I just would take straight up what was being said in the news, make a song out of it. I remember I made a song out of Scott Morrison getting very angry about people hoarding toilet paper, which feels like eons ago, but I turned it into this like, stop hoarding. Anyway, posted it to TikTok on an account with a really crazy username so that my students wouldn't find me. That was the whole reason it's Fettuccini, Fettuccine Queen still is. Um, just to be like, there you go, out into the ether on a platform that I don't use. No one's going to see it. It's just for me to be able to look back and go, oh, remember when I made all this stuff? Kind of like a scrapbook, really, like a digital scrapbook. And then it started getting attention on Twitter and on TikTok and I kept making them. I ended up making politics quotes from history from various prime ministers and I made um, various Today Show often, like, moments that went viral. I made those into songs and people, it was just so dumb. I couldn't do it again. Like, people still say, like, when are you bringing that back? And I'm like, no, because people aren't looking at their phones that closely anymore and finding joy in it anymore, that kind of stuff. You have to be more clever, basically. And um, I just did it to keep my music chops going, keep my writing ideas. Because, it's kind of, again, it's kind of the same thing where you make an exercise out of something and it's just a harmless exercise and you do it. And anyway... I started getting more attention for doing that than I've ever gotten for original music, which feels like you're selling out. But also I was selling out and I was fine with it. And then I kept making it. And then um, across the way, this sort of phenomenon popped up on TikTok as, as, as the months went on, which was a lot of composers that I was following in America mostly were making a hypothetical Ratatouille musical. All of this ties in, I promise, I have a point in the end. But basically, you know, what would happen if the Pixar movie Ratatouille, about a, a rat who cooks Michelin star meals, if anyone isn't aware of Ratatouille, was a musical. What if that was a musical? And it was all this ironic, big yes and improv joke that people just kept jumping on the train of. But honestly, I think that was one of the most beautiful moments in creativity across the world that I have ever been a part of or even witnessed. I really feel that was such a time of just people had no stakes in whether art was good People did not care about whether it would be seen or whether they'd be famous or whether it was worth doing. People just did it because it was joyful to do. And so I wrote a song for, like, I just remembered the movie. I was like, oh, Remy has a dad. And he says at one point in the movie, trash is beautiful. Like, why don't you love trash? Be like a normal rat. This is all so dumb. But to me, I was like, oh, there's a, if this was a musical, that would be a, a logical point to put a song. I'm going to write this song. I wrote it in 20 minutes complete the video and everything. And I uploaded it to TikTok once again, being like, there you go, another addition to the scrapbook, whatever. And it, I was teaching and then I went to sleep. <laughs> like I didn't check my phone and it blew up overnight. It got to me at the time, it was huge. It was like 90,000 likes, which now because of inflation of TikTok, that's like barely a blip. But back then, because not that many people were using it, uh -huh. it was huge. And then it became this snowball of like, okay, there are suddenly stage managers doing what calls they would make during this show. There were lighting designers designing lights for people's songs. So somebody made like a stage set for me. out of a sh They're called shoebox musicals on TikTok and they make these stage design sets, made it for my song. Everything blew up and then as a Broadway company were like, we're going to make a fundraiser out of this and we want to use your song, we'll pay you and, you know, you can be as involved or as not involved as you want. And so I said well, what kind of involvement is it? And they went, there's an 18-piece orchestra and we're going to get Broadway-level talent 
to sing it. And I was like, can I co-orchestrate this song, please? And they were like, yeah. So then I got to co-orchestrate. This would never have happened. This is what I mean. Like none of this would have happened if not for the fact that the world was shut down and people were looking at digital platforms because there was no other form of entertainment happening at the time. I got to collaborate with a Broadway company and a Symphionetta. That's an, I was living in Bathurst. There's just, I had no connections to the industry. I had nobody. I'm not a Nepo baby. I have nobody in my family who could have, you know, called up a few people. That would never have happened. And I still think to this day that that stupid rap musical, like Wayne Brady ended up singing my song. I have a connection to Wayne Brady still to this day based on the most dumb online viral phenomenon ever. And it, my career, my comedy career, even to this point, would not have happened if not for that show. But good example, right, of the thing that, I mean, I think we've been backing up and forward <laughs> against for this entire conversation so far, which yeah. is the idea of like the role of the audience in the art. Yeah. Because clearly there was an audience there. Like yes. there were people collaborating together to make something, Just right? love a joke. I think but it they was... weren't, it wasn't against each other. It no. wasn't like we're doing a competition to come up with a song for the Ratatouille musical. Oh my God. And now you're all competing against each other and you all go off into your own little tribes and produce <laughs> your own little thing and then it's a competition. Yeah, no. No, this was a collaboration. People were doing it because it was fun and you weren't doing yeah. it thinking I'm going to get to like, Absolutely you know, compose not. with a Broadway composer. No. You were thinking this is fun. Yeah. And it was. And like, I, I still look back at that time and I just, and a lot of people are like, God, that was, a lot of people look at it negatively now. Like a lot of people online are like, God, why did we let that happen? Why did we let a Ratatouille musical happen? Why did it? And I'm sitting here going, because it was a brief blip where the industry wasn't concerned with what was making money and what wasn't. It was, they went, people seem to be interested in doing this because it's fun. Let's just get in on the joke. If more, I I think if more um, talent scouts or like Broadway companies or those big, big, big higher ups in theatre were looking at the little guys to be like, who's doing good stuff? I feel like that's a forgotten part. Maybe I'm naive, but I feel like, you know, it's so rare. Back in the day, I reckon you could have called up a talent rep, been like, I'm doing a show at blah, 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 blah. Please come. And they would go. Now it's like, because this is online space as well, you're fighting against people who don't even live in the same country as you. You're fighting, like, with for talent reps to come and see you or industry people to come and see you, you are fighting a, a much bigger audience if you want to call it that. Whereas Ratatouille was like, people just went, yeah, right, yep, here's funding, we're going to raise money for the Actors Fund. And we raised over $2 million, which is insane. Okay. Like, it's so, brilliant. Right? Isn't that just, I mean, again, like, so I mean, we good. could get so bogged down in this, but you start... <laughs> So you make this thing because it's fun. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really why you're doing it. You're making these other, you know, TikTok videos because they're fun. Yeah. But at some stage they become popular enough that it becomes a career transition. (laughs) Yes. So when does that become an awareness? Like how does that happen? How does something – because there are so many stages in, like, people's careers like this – and there's always that bit where like, oh, this was all for fun. And then, oh, suddenly this thing that I do for fun is starting to become my job. Yes. And that's an interesting transition for everybody to, to so talk me through what, what happens. Well, basically I, I kept doing my online stuff, but obviously life kind of went back to normal. I was still teaching. Um, so I had less time. And then I got very, I got to say, it's not without help. I got incredibly lucky. Basically I got a call from another comedian in the industry who's really well beloved, Dan Illich. Who never heard of him. <laughs> never heard of him. He's just, he's just, he's, you know, he, I call him like my comedy uncle, my comedy dad, because he called me, I was still living in Bathurst and he was like, do you want to do 
my podcast, Irrational Fear. And I was going, oh. And how did he know you just from the online stuff? I, I think he saw my stuff online. He had heard my name a few times. I still don't, I mean, I don't really know. I think Nina Oyama might have mentioned me to him, who she went to CSU in Bathurst. And so I actually got drunk at a house party with her. We both don't remember it. It's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, <laughs> but I didn't really know her. You know, like we, we, we only really reconnected through comedy. Yeah. But basically my name had been thrown around. He decided to take a chance on me, called me up and was like, I want you to do this podcast. It's all online, you know, but if you could, can you write a song for it? You know, it can be about anything you want. He was really just let me be me. I ended up writing a song about the Melbourne Cup because it was coming up, which fits. It's a political podcast, so, you know, you have to sort of fit the news. And I was fine with that. I did that. And then he liked it a lot. And then I moved to Sydney. I was like, I'm through with living in Bathurst. You know, I'm going to move to Sydney. So we packed up and moved me and my partner. And and so this is a big thing. If like you yeah. and your partner are both going to move. Yeah. Like, so were you moving with the ambition of like, now I'm going to lean into this as my career? Or were you just moving in the hope that moving in itself was something? Or <laughs> we, like, what, yeah. was, what was that? Bit of both. I yeah. feel like we'd been stuck in Bathurst through the whole pandemic, really. And when we moved, well, this is before the big lockdowns in 2021, but we moved to Sydney. I think I was just like, look, I don't know if this is anything, but I am not going to do comedy in Bathurst. Like that was the thought in my head. I'm like, I I, I know it's I not can't. here. I can't do it here. It's not yeah. going to happen for me here. As much as I would love that. I mean, the rent was way cheaper. I was paying 150 bucks for a three bedroom house. I mean, it was beautiful, but my career can't happen there. So moving to a city was just a better way of taking that risk, but my partner was amazing and he also was just ready for a change. He doesn't work in the industry or anything, but he just, we were both, we're both from Bathurst, you know, we both lived there our whole lives and we were just like, it's ready. It was, we were, it was time. We were 24, you know, let's get out. And so we moved and then I worked at a piano school, um, teaching piano for about six weeks before comedy became my full-time job. And Dan gave me my first comedy gig. And this is the funniest, this is, people are going to be like, what the hell? My first comedy gig was Irrational Fear Live. It was a 10-year celebration. Or maybe it was the 100th episode. It's, it's one or the other. I yeah, played, it was, I played it both. It was but a celebration. Yeah, it was a celebration. Part. It was yes. at Giant Dwarf Theatre. And he kind of kept from me who was on the panel a bit. Like mm-hmm. he didn't really – he just – he just he does what he does very well and just kept me very chill. And he was like, it's just, you know, it's low pressure, absolutely no worries at all. Just can you write three songs? And I was like, three songs to me. I mean, me, that's not that low pressure. I was like, songs, three songs. But... Oh, my God. I like, you know, I haven't got one song. You know, I need yeah. three. Three? No, three. I can't really do the Melbourne Cup one that's gone. You know, like, it's not topical. I, I need three. Three songs. I remember crying in a hammock in my backyard about this, being like, I can't do this. I can't do this. Anyway, I wrote What them. a weird juxtaposition of emotions, so too. Weird. It's hard, it's hard crying to think that so, crying in a hammock. <laughs> on a sunny day. Feels like a song itself, yeah. I've got to be honest with you. I mean, feels like that might want, Crying that, in a hammock. Yeah, that'd be beautiful. Crying in a hammock on a summer. Yeah, I mean, that to me feels <laughs> like. Of the summer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you do Aperol. When you do grey into blue too. Oh, hey, can... <laughs> it's coming. My, my quarter-life crisis is ready. It's been brewing for a while. But anyway, so I wrote these three songs um, and I'm thinking, God, these are shit. I wrote them the weekend before this gig on the Tuesday and I'm like, these are shit. And I can't tell Dan that I wrote these in one weekend. Like I've been telling him, you know, yeah, they're ready. Yeah, they're, they're ready. He's like, cool, send me drafts when you want. And I'm like, oh, they're that good. Lying through my teeth. And I turn up and this panel, <laughs> my first comedy gig, my yeah. first live comedy gig, this panel is Hamish Blake, Yumi Steins, Alice Fraser, Chris Taylor, Lewis Hobber, who at the time I was like, that's the guy from Triple J, and Dan. And I'm, and I'm there and I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing here? Like, what am I doing here on this stage next to all these established 
comedians and writers and authors. Like, what am I? I just, I've never felt more imposter syndrome in my life. And I remember I was teaching that afternoon and I was driving to the gig and I was running late. I had a whole outfit to change into. I was going to do my makeup, but I didn't have time. By the time I got to the, the theatre, I was just in my overalls that I taught in. And I was sweaty and I had no makeup on and I rocked up to this gig thinking, it's low pressure, it's low pressure. And then I rock up and Hamish Blake is there. And I'm just like, what the hell am I doing? So this gig happens and I play three songs, um, two of which have not lasted my career, but one of them has still lasted through okay. both of my shows. Uh-huh. I played a song about not being related to Andrew Bolt, um, which I ended up changing into a stand-up bit. And then I played a song about... I mean, good to point out Oh, as well. it is, yeah. A lot of people still wonder. <laughs> I love that fact. It, go, it goes even further. I can talk about it a bit. Um, but there's a whole more correlation to Usain than Andrew in my family, which oh, is so funny to me. Okay. Anyway, I've never quite made the joke work. But I had the song about that. I had a song about how we should normalise Karen culture in Parliament. So Karens are bad in a retail space, but if we actually had people knocking on the doors of Parliament being like, why did this happen to yeah. me? <laughs> we might get some I mean, things they done. Are, they are the ultimate managers. Yeah, we should really have them. And they need really to be complained them. to. That yeah, is, yeah, no. <laughs> we need them in Parliament. Mm. And then the third song is a song that has lasted my career called Love Song for an Incel, which was about how I got a comment online once about, you know, would you bang out of 10 from an anonymous egg account on okay. Twitter mm-hmm. about a political point that I was making, which had nothing to do with my bangability, not that that guy really cared. And this song talks about how, okay, I'll humour you or take you out on this date and you know, we'll go to your basement, which is where you live because you live in the basement of your mum's house and you can't drive because I've met you at a bus station when you cat called me and said, nice rack. And I was very flattered, you know, this whole idea of humouring this kind of person. And I was thinking the entire time I was like, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. This is not going to work. And then I left that stage being more in love with comedy than I've ever been in love with music. And I think it gave, I was so lucky to have somebody like Dan to just absolutely take a risk and a chance. He probably doesn't even see it that way, but I, I see it as like there was uh, no reason to no, book me. I mean, look, I think that he has an awareness. Like, I mean, this is Dan's, I've, I've remembered who you're talking about now. <laughs> Dan Illich <laughs> yeah. is what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, no, um, like, I mean, this is Dan's great gift. Is yeah. that Like, I mean, it's, it's what he's particularly great at. Yeah. He's like... He cares about identifying and nurturing new talent. Yeah. The truth of it is that he does. And he likes putting that new talent. And this is the the biggest thing. And mm. I something that both Dan and I share is a is the idea that you've got to mix it all together. Mm-hmm. Like I think the mistake often people make with new talent is that they, you know, even like in the broader media, they yeah. give like a a show to some new talent and they throw them in the deep end without the experience they need to actually make a success of what it is that they do. Whereas often it's about making sure that the new talent gets to be in the same room as the more established talent. And and that's a, that's a greater way for that person to accelerate their, you know, comedy experience and process like is to do that, to be in those environments. Yeah. And I'm sure he doesn't see it as a big pressured environment at the time, but I was on that stage and I had literally two options, which was either smash it out of the park or run away, like, or fail. And to me, that's, it's solidified. I mean, that's always, to yeah. be honest, that's always. How it feels. And it's that's always what it is yeah. in a way. And like, I've never felt that kind of drive to be good. Uh-huh. I think, like, until I yeah. I was on stage with these people, and I'm like, I have to be good because all these people, everyone already knows that they're good, but nobody even knows who I am. So I have to be good. And then yeah. I think it just... You have to be the best. I have to be like, the best. <laughs> normally in that situation, what I would say to anyone who's you, like, you know, they're the person that everyone isn't there to see. Yeah. You want to be the best. You want to be the person that they go, who is that? Yeah. And so I did. And, and and Dan still talks so fondly about that gig for me as well. And I still think, God, if I had never been given that opportunity, 
I wouldn't have known what rooms to contact. I wouldn't have known how to get a gig or a spot, you know, at the store or at the factory. I, w- I just didn't know anything. And he is a huge, huge part of the reason why I know things now and why I had an open door. And what's funny about somebody who's so focused on bringing up new talent is it just makes me want to bring up new talent as well. Like now I'm like, God, if I had the money, I think about this a lot. If I had the money, all the money in the world, I'd start a production company fully angled at bringing in people who have never had that door open for them. But I'd start an all female non-binary production company and work with women because so often you see sketch scripts that are like one woman's in this script or two women are in this script and everybody else is them. And I just, I want to flip that. And like, I want to bring up new talent. I want to nurture talent. I want to not force this competition that so often feels like it's dawning upon, particularly women in the comedy, comedy industry, because, you know, you fit a box already. I've been on lineups where, you know, if there's somebody else who plays a keyboard, you're out. And yeah, it's like, I mean, the, and it's, you, you, it's about moving beyond. Yeah. Look, uh, the, the truth of it is that when you've been a, around for as long as I have, <laughs> you see both how, how slow progress can be and how quickly it also happens, if yeah. that makes sense. Like yeah. you see both. Yeah. Right? And it is a real combination of both. Like it's a push and a pull. Yeah. And like some areas move much more quickly than others. And there are parts of it that play out almost exactly the same way constantly, yeah. which is that diversity is token at first. <laughs> you know what I mean? It is though. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's the truth. A lot of places it ends up being token first. Yeah. And it has to move to the point where it's not token. So like like you say, like if the, it has to move to the point of like going, oh, no, we can have two women who play the keyboard on a lineup. <laughs> that is also diversity. And it also, isn't like we've ticked that box and we have to move on and like not have yeah. anything else. That's when it truly becomes, you know, like you said, when you when there can be more than one, because there's more than one straight white guy you exactly. know, there. So when you can be more than one Sri Lankan-born you know, stand-up comedian, when you can be more than one yeah. non-binary comedian on the lineup, and it not be the one place we had for that person, one of that's obviously the you know, yeah one of the most beautiful lineups I was on. I did a, a festival club spot at Melbourne Comedy Festival this year, and it was all musical comedians because we were doing Josh Earl's podcast, which was all about the hits of 1997, and we were all given this list: pick a right. song, do a cover, and everyone was a musical comedian. It was just one of the most amazing, fabulous. I wanted to watch every performance, which like when you're working, sometimes you're like, I just want to do my spot and leave. But because it was musical for me, I was like, I'm going to watch everybody. Everyone brought friends along. I brought in my friends, Mel and Sam, who are also incredible musical comedians. Jude Pearl brought tripod and did these amazing four parts. Like it was just, there was no competition. It was joyful. And all I walked away from was like, God, I wish there was a market for this. Like just, just musical comedy lineups all the time. And I don't, because I think often, particularly as a musical comedian or an alternative comedian, a lot of, you know, sketch artists probably find the same thing. Mime people probably find the same thing. When you're booked on a lineup, it's like, well, that's the musical comedian for the night. And you're like, oh, but we're all amazing and we all do different things as much as people don't want to think we do. Mm. You all seem like, a, like you're a lot of fuss, though. Yeah, that's true. have to plug things I need a grand in piano, and we're going to no. need to <laughs> unplug things. And then there's going to be like four, I mean, Jude Pearl's oh. fucking tripod, guys. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no room in the green but room for all these people. What's crazy is like performing. It's like I would do it without any power, you know, if I had to. If I had to and I, all I had was voices, I'd get a choir. I'd be like, cool, no mics, it's fine. We'll just huddle on the stage. Like I love it so much. But, yeah, I think diversity is something really important to me. And also, I mean, 
all of this sounds really rich coming from me as well. I mean, I'm a straight white woman as well. I'm not the most diverse person. In fact, I'm literally the second off the rank. There's straight white guy comedians and then there's straight white female comedians. Uh, Gabby is wearing brown face during this entire interview, so I thought that was good for cultural Don't, diversity. because someone on my TikTok audience is going to believe you and then no, hound me about it. You, you know what? If they've managed to make it all the way from TikTok over to something that goes for two hours true. that you have to that's sit true. and listen to. Then, if they're still here, that's yeah, amazing. good luck to you. Yeah, if you've no. made it this far, I think you get the joke you're that right. I'm making. Yeah, you're right. The platform <laughs> is only one minute long videos for a very long time. But yeah, I... If you've managed to retrain your brain in a way that you can actually <laughs> listen to something in yeah. long form. Then, no, I'll be scrubbing through this yeah. at high speed. Don't worry. <laughs> double, do you ever do that with the podcast, double speed? I never do that. You never do that? Never do that. Maybe I've been conditioned no, to... No, this is like the modern age. Like mm. we... There's so much info. So talk to me about this. This oh, is yeah. interesting. So um, it's been one. So I'm off social media. I've been off social media for about oh, eight, eight months now. But so as good. I always say, I've got, I've actually ghosted social media because my accounts all still exist. Someone from my management company, you know, posts Tells my, you every now and again. The, you know, posts the show dates and all those sort of things. So gotcha. I get some of the benefit of it without actually being there. So yeah. I, I understand that in itself is a very privileged position. Also, my career is not on the way up. Like, uh, no, as in, like, oh, right. you know, part of social media, mm -hmm. like the infrastructure of it, the thing it convinces you is that it's necessary to build an audience, yes. to curate an audience, to, I'm fine with my audience. Yeah. You know, and you've like, got one. I've got one and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I, the, the term I use all the time is I'm not running for parliament. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like. You don't need outreach. People are here or not and they can come or not. Gosh. But there's enough people who come that, that I it. can just make what I want to make and I don't need to be running for office anymore, yeah. you know? Like yeah. that's that's not the race I'm in. Yeah. Like I'm not saying at some point in my career there wasn't running for office <laughs> no, about it. Well, of course there was. That's When you're doing Glasshouse and stuff, I'm sure that would have felt yeah, really of, pressure. Right. And part of the growth of yeah. your career is ambition and the things that come with it. And I'm not saying that I'm without ambition. My ambition is purely just about the sort of work I want to make, not the audience that yes. I need to garner. Not measuring it by the numbers, measuring it by how much yeah. people like it, who like it, right? But that's a very different part of my life and career. So, mm. like, clearly you live in a very different world. You're young, yes. you're on the way up, social media, and, and yeah, it's partly Informs. where you actually, you know, became an act. Yeah. Uh, so you're not going to step away from it. It's going to inform the future of how your work gets out there to people, yes. like you said, all around the world. Yeah, but also you you are constantly working for these, you know, big companies that don't have your best interests at heart yeah. at all. Like you are actually just like you're a, a worker product. in their factory. Yeah. It's... They like you to keep making this stuff so that they can be successful. And if you are incidentally successful, then that is that is fine. But they story. don't care. Yeah. It's it's hard too because as a comedian, often a part of the the job is critiquing that kind of system. Yeah. It's, I'm a t like I always say this like I'm I'm a I think I'm a good performer I'm a terrible influencer and when I get introduced I still get introduced as like she's a TikTok comedian I'm like I am first of all inflation of the app means if you look at my followership now compared to people who are actually in my mind TikTok famous uh -huh. I'm not I'm not like no. I was once there was a moment there was a brief yeah. moment it was a rap musical and after that everyone kind of went all right enough mm -hmm. like and I'm fine with it. So people get really confused yeah. with the mixed messaging of like, she's TikTok famous. And then I walk out on stage and they're like, who the fuck's that? And I'm like, fair enough. But at the same time, I often want to critique a lot of the systems that being an influencer benefit from. I'm a terrible, I'm a terrible influencer. Like I don't take many brand deals at all because I think, God, where were these clothes made? Where was this stuff made? Who is organizing this? Why am I not getting paid for this? 
I see, and I'm I'm so happy for people who make their money doing that. I, I I just can't because if I make, I mean, I had a whole song about climate change and about how individual actions aren't actually changing much. It's the twelve companies that have seventy five percent of the world's emissions pumping into the air that maybe should maybe should change their policies sure. before I, you know, buy yeah, a bamboo toothbrush. That seems complicated, though. It's nuanced and it's complicated <laughs> and people don't like I've had walkouts of that song, but I can't sit there Unless and Unless you critique. are someone who was employed by those 12 fossil fuel companies, <laughs> then the idea that you would walk out in that moment, that the destruction of our planet, yeah. the very planet that billions of us live on, has been completely manipulated by a small group of people for their massive profits and you walk out in protest, unless you are a member of one of those families or one of those well, organisations and you sit in your fucking seat exactly. and you listen to this song. Do you know what's crazy? My dad works in a coal power station uh, and he oh yeah. and he saw that song mm -hmm. and at first wanted to argue with me about yeah. it. And then I went, Dad, have you ever Come thought on. that the company you work for has been telling you that this isn't the case because they want you to continue working for them? And he was like, oh, and then he likes it now, but it's it's. But also, I'm I not. I'm like, I mean, I grew up in East, East Gippsland, and like, yeah. you know, like Loyang Power Station, like the, the mm -hmm. you know, that, and like Hayfields a timber town. Like, yeah. there's a whole bunch of. My dad was Willarrowang. People who work in those industries are. They the, have to still like it. Yeah, and that's part of. I mean, any industry. Same like, thing as the cops. You have self to be mythology, told, right? Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. know, you have to be told you're doing the right thing, and it's an MLM this is the right on reason. a big scale. Yeah, <laughs> it's a multi-level marketing scheme <laughs> yeah. for massive corporations. But yeah, I couldn't ever like the reason I couldn't be an influencer was like I can't walk out onto a stage and critique climate change and then turn around and be like. Sheen Hall, I can't do that. Like, because yeah. it, it, for me, that's me choosing what I like to write about and what I do over making money, which is not everyone's thing. I mean, in this world, fucking inflation the way it is, cost of living, make your money however you get it. And I'm never going to shit on somebody. I'm friends with many influencers. I'm never going to shit on them for taking a brand deal because it's it's a job and yes. it's a hard job. And I fucking hate what you the, have but to the do guy, for it. That's the problem. So yeah. I mean, again, I, it was, you know, it, don't hate the player, hate the game. Exactly. Like, the system is the system. Yeah. And the idea that you can't in, you can't, this is, particularly when it comes to the climate, like the argument you often hear of the kids protesting was like, oh, but they've all got mobile phones and they've all got blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And you're like, the idea that you can't criticize the system while also having, having to live to be within a part of it. the system is, I mean, it's one of the most damaging, yeah. like, you know, arguments in our society is like, no, you, your argument is invalid because you still have to, like, you flew here to yeah. you know, sing your little funny song about the climate. Yep. I did. Yeah. And if there was another way, I would have I done, done that, it. but there is not. It's either a gas guzzler for eight hours or yeah. a gas guzzler for one, and I'm going to go with the and one. People need to hear my funny song. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. and yeah, and I need the $400 that it's paying me. You yeah. know, like, it's hard, and I feel... I do kind of feel this longing for a comedy industry or any industry really, an arts industry that in some ways I'm sure it's, a, it's hard to talk about this because I feel like anybody over the age of 30 is going to be like, you're an idiot. It wouldn't have been easier for you back in the 90s and the early 80s, you know, because as a woman, it would have been a lot harder to book a gig. But I do feel like there was a lot more of like, you know, that kind of thing that people still talk about in terms of a job, walking into a building, being the janitor for a couple of weeks and then knocking on someone's door going, hey, can I be the editing guy? Yeah, you can be an editing guy. Oh, knocking on the door. Hey, can I be on the show? That I don't feel that this world accommodates that level of growth in an industry anymore. It is so rare to find people like yourself and like Dan Illich who reach out and give you those doors. It's almost like the doors aren't real until you... I'm still saying things in the industry where people go, oh, didn't you know that this is how you do this? 
or this is how this is done. And it's not transparent. And I feel like if nothing else, I really want an arts industry to be transparent for those people. Because so much, like city centres accommodate comedy, but so many comedians, as we were saying before, are from regional areas. But growing up in those areas, no one tells you how the arts like that work. No one is like, hey, you can be a writer on a TV show and then be a cast member later. Or if you want to do this, it's probably good to you know talk to these people or send this email. You'd be amazed who will reply to your emails. Like even just sending emails out, people send me emails being like, here's my song. I've written it. I would love your... This happened a lot during Ratatouille, of all things. I had people from literally all over being like, what do you think of this song? And the one thing I always did was listen to it and be like, here's what I think. And I think it's really good and keep writing. And like, they're like 15, 16. I think I would have killed to have people like that. I did in the community. I had musicians in the area, but nobody in comedy. I liked comedy my whole life. I didn't ever think I could do it. It's interesting what you say about the not knowing what the rules or not rules or whatever the doors yeah. or not doors are, because in a way... Like there isn't any, yeah. but in another way, there's a whole bunch of them. And that's yeah. the hardest thing about it is like, I often find that I, I was talking to someone uh, recently, I won't name the person because mm. I don't, I, I like, I haven't cleared this story with sure. them, but it's, um, so uh, with question everything in the afternoons, you know, we have these panels mm-hmm. and you know, the, the, the idea of those panels is that we're essentially for People have never seen the show. That there's episodes on um, ABC Ivy. Jump in at series two. Oh, seamless um, plug, seamless. But yeah, That's I beautiful. know it's good, right? You're a professional. Series two, ignore yeah. series one. I'm trying to get it taken <laughs> down. It was made in the pandemic with yeah, no audience. Fair enough. It was horrible. Fair enough. But um, uh, so during the afternoon, we send out those same questions, the same offers that the experienced people on our panel are going to get. We send them out to comedians who aren't necessarily at that level yet, some of whom will end up on the show, people like Blake Freeman who Mm. went through that process, some of whom are just getting the experience of like sitting on a TV panel doing the show, those sort of things. Anyway, I was uh, having a chat to one of the panellists who'd been on and they were um, asking me for some advice about like, you know, what they'd done well or what they hadn't done well or, you know, feedback basically. And I said to them, I said, like, oh, you know, I, here's, here's what I think and here's what I remember, but, like, it had been sort of a week and a half or two weeks since it happened. And I yeah. said, next time we do it. Talk to me right Just call me, like, either that day or, like, call me the next day while all my, like, I haven't done a, you know, a yeah. dozen more of them since then and I can give you some proper, you know, feedback. proper feedback. And they said, yeah, I just didn't know you were allowed to do that. Yeah. it's. And I said, well, I mean, I guess some people wouldn't want you to do that, but I'm happy for you to do that. It's like. crazy. It's like, I mean, that's the same for me. When I first met you, I like, I'd seen you on my TV my whole life. My dad and I used to watch Gruen like mm. every week. Yeah, I'm old. And it's, no, but it's like, it's, it, you feel completely untouchable. I feel like people you've grown up watching, you don't feel like, when I first met him, I was like, oh, he's a very busy person. He's probably very, very busy and probably has no time for my questions. And then it's like, the more you have to be the person in that situation with a new person to be like, you can talk to me and you won't catch fire. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I actually am completely accessible to you. <laughs> Here's my number. Like the moment you give out an email going, email yeah. me, it's, it feels so dumb. Like even me now, I'm like, yeah, just send me an email. People are like, really? I'm like, what do you think I'm going to do? Rip it up? Like, <laughs> delete it? It's what? an email. Yeah, it's an email. Just send me an email. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the way forward. But at the same time, I, I, I think comedy is, it's with this ever-changing social media landscape and stuff, it feels like the, it feels like it's less likely you're going to throw a gig somewhere and flyer on the street and get an audience that way. 
But when you've grown up fond of comedy, it's like you want to do those things and then you realise, oh, it doesn't work like it did in 2003, you know. Like I remember I flyed, I bought flyers for, um, for Adelaide and then I turned up and I had this stack of flyers and I was like, all right, time to earn my comedy chops flying on the street. And then you go out to the street, no one's flying. <laughs> people are either flying and people, you watch people take a flyer and throw it in the bin, which hasn't changed. Or, you know, the event themselves are like, we're not flying this year because it's not environmentally friendly. And you kind of go, that's fair enough. But Because everybody takes a flyer and throws, throws it in it the away. bin. <laughs> <laughs> or on the floor. Yeah. And so, you know, I just kind of think, God, the processes, even from 20 years ago to now, which is not that long a time for art, like the way festivals work even. Even festivals are becoming kind of unsustainable because it's like back in the day I feel like it was so much more likely that you could do a festival run and the buzz and the word of mouth and people would want to come and, and be a part of it. I feel like now with so many pressures affecting the average public, you know, cost of living, people value art a lot less in this landscape because there's just so much more going on. I feel like even me, I, I even looked at my ticket prices, you know, at a couple of festivals this year and I looked at my bank account and went, if I had to buy a ticket to me right now, I couldn't. Mm. And that's insane. Like, Yeah, I know what you mean by that. That is that's that. a tough area because – there is this element of, you know, you've got to value your work and all these sort of things, but you're right. Like, yeah. particularly in the early days, you've got to make sure that your work is accessible to the people who you Should want to come. see your work and what you want to grow with your work. Yeah. And if you're going to talk about things that are more niche to your life and your experience, you've got to make sure that the it people matches. who are also living your experience are able to actually exactly. come along and access what it is that you're doing. Exactly. And it's it's a weird thing. And it's a weird thing to watch old specials or watch old documentaries or old TV shows. And I feel like I'm going through a thing right now where I'm so nostalgic for an area of this career that I have never experienced, which is like I, I grew up watching shows like Sideshow, which to me, which was probably my big gig. Like my mum talks so fondly about the big gig and I'm like, what's the big gig? And she would be the, she's the reason that I know about these things. I would watch Sideshow till 10 p.m. at night on a school night at like 10 years old because I'm thinking, oh my God, I want to do that. And then I get here and TV is not even a, like TV for the most part for people my age is not a thing. Oh, uh, and I, I mean, never thought, I, I was so reliant on free-to-air television as a child, I never once ever pictured a world in which free-to-air television wasn't like, you have made it. And now it's like, God, I wish I was, I wish I was me now in 2005. Like I wish I was 26 in 2005. I could audition for these things and try and just experience them. That's why I like doing a show like Spicks and Specs was so unbelievable for me because it was like, mm. It felt like one of those shows. It felt like one yeah. of those shows. It just hasn't – and I'm not saying this as a critique. It just – it felt like how I felt watching it as a kid. Like oh, being I mean, on it, I, mean, I was like, this is exactly think, how yeah, I felt watching it. Yeah, I think that's it. part of the appeal of it is yeah. that in a way the show – like a show like that, Yeah, it is – the ultimate, it always was. Yes. Like, this is, again, not a critique. No, it's hard. because It's, it's like, comfort viewing. Yeah. It, it always has been comfort viewing. Yeah. And the fact that it is still comfortable, like, is a good thing. Yes. Like, you know. And I also felt, because I'm a musician and I grew up, literally grew up divulging that, I felt so prepared because it was just like, they didn't even get, the producer, I remember, he sat me down and he's like, so are you aware of how the game Substitute works? And I literally went, am I aware of how Substitute, I've been watching that since I've been practicing. I used to play Substitute with my family. Like we used to get books out. Like I just feel like television and all of the, those comedy opportunities back in the early thousands, which is where I sort of started watching them, I feel like they valued comedy so highly and risk took, took a lot of risk with people. Shows were a lot less serious 
And also advertising was a lot less prominent. And I think now it's just a state of the fact that digital content is far more and you can be a lot more independent on digital platforms, but there's so much of it. There's Pro, just so much cons. of it. So yeah. like the, the gatekeepers were terrible if you were kept out of the gate, yes. but there was some element of that you had to pass something to get yeah. to an area, right? There was a graduation of sorts. Mm. Now suddenly we lowered the bar from, uh, the, the, I mean, this is a very old school way of looking at it and no. I'm not actually sure that this, but the minute we went from it being the entertainment industry to the content producing industry, we lowered the expectation of what it was. At yeah. some stage it had to be entertaining. Yeah. Whereas now it just needs to be content. That it needs does to not be mean there. that much of that content can't also be entertaining. Oh, and but, brilliant. But it has to be content. Yeah. And it is that very much like a lot of it is just constant and it's like a beast. And you and the fact that the barrier to entry is just yourself. Yeah. But it also means, I used to joke about this with podcasts, which is in the early days of podcasts, because, you know, we, we basically had a podcast from not the not the absolute there's gold in then there hills sort of pioneer days, but <laughs> very back, you know, before yeah. podcasting was the thing Huge that it has now become, is there was a time when people started quitting their podcasts. No one had ever done that before, right? Yeah, because. Wow. There was no one to – you had to decide. Normally in radio or TV or whatever, someone eventually someone you. decides on your behalf <laughs> that, that it is time for you to finish, <laughs> yeah. right? Whereas suddenly you have this job where the great thing about it is that you have no boss. And the but worst also thing the about worst it. thing is that, like, it, no one's going to come along and say, maybe this isn't for you or maybe it's time or, to do something or else. do this. Yeah. I, I rely – and that's the other thing. It's like a lot of people view me as this sort of – not a lot of people. I don't know if this is true. I think my perception of how my audience views me – is that I'm very self-produced, quite self-made, which is not 100% incorrect, but I work so much better with other people than I do by myself. Like when I'm writing, I could write something. I write, I'm convinced if I had literally just a person like yourself sitting there and I went, okay, this song, blah, 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 and all you have to do is go, yeah, that's funny. I would write so much quicker. Interesting. Because I struggle thinking I just can't I, – I struggle to critique myself balanced, like, fairly because I critique myself really harshly and I go, that's not funny. And then what's really funny about it is I'll play the song for somebody who's never heard it and they'll go, ha-ha, and I'll go, oh, oh, okay. And having a job where there's nobody going, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, take this risk, don't take this risk. For somebody like me who has crippling anxiety, I hate it. I can't wait to – sometimes I catch myself writing a comedy show and I think, God – I could really work in an office. I'm like, I could be a secretary. I'd love being a secretary because being a secretary is just being told, can you send this email? Can you do this? Can you staple these files? Yeah, you can want you? someone else to tell you what to do. And I just fulfill a need for mm. somebody. I'm very good at being told what to write about and writing about that. That's why I always think if somebody wanted to write a musical but they didn't know how to write music, I'm the perfect person to consult. Yeah, even with the Ratatouille experience, it's, it's like, you did, like it's like something that's I been created that you can, yeah. I can draw from. I think in a way, one of the most interesting things I wanted to talk to you about was to, like you said, you haven't done like necessarily a lot of stuff yet. You talk about this point, of, but that's what I wanted to capture a bit of today is, you know, where you're at, like this part of your career. And I think that's like part of the joy of like you trying to process like, you know, where you're at and what you're doing and where it's going. So let's, well, I want to talk about philosophy and the usual questions in a minute, <laughs> yeah. but, but I, I want to put a bow on this, which is. So where are you now? So you've done your first show. So this is from the outside. Yeah. You do this first show. Yeah. You, and look, you get like a lot of 
very favorable, not just reviews of the show, but like public support from industry people, like got a pretty good ride. Like yeah, deserved, I got not un- undeserved. No, I got, got, un- my agent still says yeah. with this second show, she was like, so just letting you know, last year, mm. that's never going to happen again. No. And I, I believe me, I of all people know that that year was freakish. I had this unbelievable experience of selling out my show, having a great audience support. I had support online from people like yourself and Dan and lots of journalists who jumped on board and just people who had been quietly following me online, who I didn't realise were following me online. People who worked at ABC wanted to give me radio interviews. Alice Zavslaski found me through my Andrew Proben musical from three years ago. And interviewed me on ABC Breakfast like a month ago. It's it's I had this unbelievably amazing time. But the problem with it is that it's not how it normally goes. No. And so I had to, yeah, basically come off the first show and be like, I guess that's comedy, but I don't think it goes that well for most people. So the second show has been, oh, this is comedy festival. This yeah. is what doing so festivals is. So tell me is. then, like, just tell me about some of that experience. Like, what was the difference between that first year where Almost everything. I mean, of course, I'm sure there were a whole bunch of things that went wrong the first year as well. But, oh, but, but like in a general sense, no, everything it, went pretty much as well as it possibly could yeah, have gone. It, so then you have to back it up. Yeah. And going into that knowing, like, because there's always going to be a part of you that thinks, well, maybe I'm just great and it'll get better and better every no. year. But it feels like that wasn't what you no, thought. No, I, I really, really struggled letting the first show go. I'm not sure if this is a universal experience, but because I had such an amazing year and also coming out of a pandemic where live performance was coming back as well and everyone else wanted to jump on board, I really grieved that first show. I kept wanting to let it go and other opportunities for it kept coming up. Like I was going to finish it after Melbourne last year, write the next one then, but then Edinburgh came up and I was like, well, yeah, okay, I'll do Edinburgh, sure. That's normal for your first year in comedy, doing Edinburgh, sure, why not? did it to Edinburgh. Then I was like, okay, it's done. Start writing the next one. Then a Bathurst show came up and I was like, obviously, and that was the most beautiful show. And I just couldn't let it go. And then writing this check, the second show, I had to have it done by Perth Fringe, which is in January. And by the time I'd finished doing a chaser tour in the Bathurst show, I had like three weeks to write this thing. And I have never cried more in my life. Every single day I was like, I am not good at this. Turns out the first show was a complete fluke and I just had this amazing year and maybe that was my gift and now I shouldn't do comedy anymore. Like I was lit- That's all it took. I know a lot of people have been doing comedy for 15 years and they're like, maybe I'll quit. One year for me and I went, oh, I'm actually not good at this and that whole thing was because of buzz and because of, you know, support. And now that I don't have that, when you take the mask off, I'm actually just really average at this. But then I wrote the show and I'm actually just – People probably don't really get this from the show. People people say they like the show, and I love the show too. I think it's silly and it's fun and it's light, which is different from the first one. Um, but I think I'm just so proud of myself for pushing through those feelings of I just don't – when I was writing it, I just didn't want to do anything less. Like I didn't want to write it. I thought it was worthless. And then the first show I did in Perth, I went into Perth going, oh, my God, everyone's going to hate this. I hate this. This is going to suck. And that first audience in Perth, just gave me everything. They were so supportive. They laughed at all the jokes. They got on board with all the songs. They got. I did what I did. Much more crowd work in this second show, which is something I've been scared of my whole life. And now I love crowd work. I love improv. I did my first improv show in Melbourne. So I think, like, for me, this second show, I knew going in, and I'm very proud of myself for knowing this. Going in, I was like, it is not going to sell out. 
it's not going to be the award winner. So that pressure was off. It was lovely, actually, to enjoy a festival season without worrying about, am I going to get nominated for this or this? I was like, I'm not getting nominated for shit. I'm just having a great time. And the audiences were lovely. I had people make things for my show. I had, oh, there were two girls in Adelaide who wrote me a song. You know, I had somebody make me an Andrew Garfield necklace. Somebody else made me a poster. I had people make things and get me to sign things. And I've never experienced that because the first show, no one knows or cares who I am. Right. Second show, yeah. the thing that was beautiful was people coming back. Right. Audience, the first people who come back. And I will never forget them. There was a right. couple that... Had Hopefully their first you don't. Date. Like what you want to do is make sure that they come back every year for <laughs> yeah. the next twenty years. Well, that's really important to me as well. And I, I always, I always sort of introduce myself and ask for their name as well, so I can be like, right, that's who they are. And when I see them again next year, I'm going to know. There was a couple who had their first date at my show last year and came back this year for their quote unquote second date, and I was just like, oh, you're still together. That's good. And they were like, yeah, well, you have to come back next year, otherwise we'll break up. And like, it's this. Whole... I mean, I had a uh, guy propose to his girlfriend <laughs> oh. at my show because they, I think, went on their first date and they would come every year. That's so. They used sweet. to hit me up every year, and I, they haven't recently, which oh. makes me feel. Check in on I them. I hope. I hope they're okay. <laughs> I hope things are still okay. It's all right. Maybe you can go the Daniel Sloss route and start signing divorce papers as well. I don't <laughs> I don't think I want to go to that area. Um, but yeah, I think yeah. the second show was about letting go of my own ego a bit more. Which I don't I I I, I do like having that crazy first year where everything went well is not something um common to my life. I've never really I don't think I had an easy ride in terms of academics or anything like that. And school was, like, fine. I was average at most things except for piano. So this felt like... So I felt lucky. like, oh, what, what's this? Yes. Like, you know... Oh, I finally found, found the thing. Found something. The this thing. is the thing that I'm good at and, and that people, people think like. that I'm good at and people like it and they yeah. respond to it. Yeah. And then the second year felt way more normal, which was actually very good because I think, you know, going into half-sold shows and trying not to be like, it's half-sold. Instead, I was like, it's half-sold, like yeah. glass half-full all the time. Um but I found a month long at Melbourne, which is the longest I've ever done a show for. So I did the whole month this year. And when you don't live in Melbourne and when you're there by yourself, that can be a bit of a, a head fuck a bit. Sorry, can I swear on this podcast? I have no idea. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, I found that to be Be tough. I, I, tough. I, I would refuse to do the podcast yeah. if you couldn't swear. But <laughs> okay, I, yeah, I was going to say, I was like, no, he seems chill. Yeah, he's, not, he's not a narc. You can swear on whatever oh, I great. do, I think. Fuck yeah, bring out the regional. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think I found that to be quite lonely. And I think that's because I didn't travel much as a kid either. Like my family holidays were like going to Sydney, which is like, oh my God, we're going to Sydney, mm. you know. So, you know, being in another state it doesn't really hit me until I'm about halfway through the run. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in another state and I'm completely separate from everyone I know. It's lovely catching up with my comedy friends. I've got those this year a lot more now too, which is good. But it's hard to avoid the feeling of like everyone else who is my age in this industry is like five career years ahead of me in terms of where they're at because they've been doing it longer or they've been living in Melbourne where there's been a comedy scene for years. In a way, though, it's that's hard. actually not even true. No, like, I know. Because you kind of, like, the I think I was worried for you was actually <laughs> the opposite of that, that there might be some resentment from people who th thought you parachuted in a bit over I the top. I think some people still do think that. I've never had them talk to me, mm. which is great. <laughs> yeah, um, what you don't know doesn't and I, hurt Yeah, you. and I, I just... I, <laughs> I think I always lead. Keep it behind my back, people. That's all I. That's all I ask is. Yeah. I, I mean, you can I, talk as I much know you're saying you mean things. We all say mean things. Oh, I yeah. just please I be just careful. I do not hear about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely, 
I think I'm the biggest critique of that. Uh. Like, I feel like I'm definitely the one who goes, I don't deserve to fucking be here. I remember when I did, I did comedy up late last year. Yep. And I know that there were friends, you know, who were like, I was asking for that gig for months. And then you swan in here and you sell it. And I was like, I get it. And I, and that's why when I do those opportunities and when I get them, um, a, I know they're not going to last forever. I mean, this year I didn't get really, apart from that one festival club gig, I didn't do anything. Um, and I wasn't bitter because it was like, well, no, because I knew the gravity of what I got when I got it. And I constantly lead with that. Like every time I get an opportunity, I'm like, I'm incredibly lucky to have been given this. I'm going to do everything I can to be good at this. Um, I do not take any of those gigs lightly. And I think that's just the way to keep going. I, I mean, I, it's hard because like... For me, it's still, I still have to wake up and remind myself, holy crap, you work in comedy. Because when I was a kid, it was like, okay, when I was a kid, my dream was to be a stagehand. I wanted to, because I was like, I can do that. And that is a job I can do anywhere. <laughs> like my dad, my mum was always supportive of anything I wanted to do because she's, she's my mum. But my dad was a much more logical and authoritarian kind of guy. And when I'd see him every other week, he'd be like, cool, so music's great, but what's your backup? For like 16 years of my life, music's good, what's your backup? I think you'd be a great stage manager. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Music's probably very unstable and you're just worried about me. And I remember the first time I did a comedy festival show and he came in Adelaide last year. And I think that was the moment my dad finally went, oh, okay, you know, you're all right. Like this can be your career. You're actually quite funny. Yeah. Turns, <laughs> and out, I think, turns out, A, there's no stagehand involved in this yeah, show. So that would have been a terrible job. Yeah. It's good though. I got my cert three. I was really prepared. And now I can do stage sound checks like that like, real quick. Uh, but it's, yeah, I, I get think that. It's, it's, on the one hand, I feel like a lot of people do view from the outside that I just swanned in and I was just privileged and, you know, lucky and, you know, oh, why does she get all these opportunities? And on the other hand, I think people forget, including me, how long I did gigs, or I busked, you know, which is basically comedy without an audience, um, a willing audience. I played pub gigs, which is keeping a crowd engaged when they don't want to see you there. Like if you're in front of the footy screens, that is the toughest job ever. That's still tougher than doing any comedy gig to me, yeah. is keeping people engaged with what you're doing when the fucking, you know, St. George Dragons are playing. Um, I did pub gigs. I did weddings. I did... I wrote songs, I threw my own EP launch in a fucking mill and I, I've organised events and I've performed my whole life and I think that's the thing I keep, I keep saying and my partner keeps reminding me, I keep saying like, God, I'm so new at comedy, I shouldn't be getting all these, this is fucked. You know, I've had the yeah. comedy store gig. But you've been people. working all those like I, under, things. Behind the, yeah, behind the scenes. I think all of those comedy muscles were getting worked. I just didn't know that they were comedy muscles. Yeah, and like you said, you're from a regional town. You're, <laughs> you're not a Nepo baby. I know that my dairy farmer father really opened some doors for me in the comedy industry. <laughs> yeah, my dad's a civil engineer. My mum's a social worker. I mean, I think things can be both, right? Yeah. Like I can acknowledge you know, the great privilege I had being like a white straight man at a time when comedy was opening up for white straight yeah. men. Well, also counterbalancing, like, you know, the disadvantages that came as well, like mm. being a country kid and like the same thing as you. Like anytime I express like, hey, this might be the thing that I want to do with my life, it was always about. Oh, yeah, sure. Right, right but, over, mate. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what's, yeah, what's, what, your what's your real backup? Yeah. What are you actually going to do? Yeah. Take over the dairy farm. I asked myself that question a lot during oh, the pandemic. True. I was like, what am I going to do? Did you find yourself going, God, I wish what I had gone I to university for anything? I have a university degree. Do you? In I what? Do, in journalism. Oh, don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> my my brother got a degree in journalism, and my boyfriend got a degree in journalism, yeah. and neither one of them works in journalism. No, neither. So, well, well I, this is some form of journalism, I guess. But. I attempted three different degrees, and I didn't finish any of them. But now my hex debt is fifty grand, so that's good. Congratulations, <laughs> Thank you. So it's almost like I got a degree. But uh, I often yes, think. you've certainly paid for something. Like, I mean, they add all three together. Yeah. One super hey, degree. made some pretty good friends at all those unis. Uh, is... The conceit of this podcast is that I ask people if they have a life philosophy of any kind, and we are mm. running out of time quickly. Oh, so sorry. what time is it now? 11.47. Yeah, so we, it's minutes. okay. We've got 13 <laughs> minutes in total, and I've got a bunch of questions. So let's good. tick off. Uh, do you have a life philosophy of any kind? I do. I'm not religious, but I think... I, I never thought I believed in, like, quote-unquote karma. I think karma is associated with many religions, and I'm not religious, but definitely leading with kindness. I find what goes around comes around, and if you always rise above something, you tend to end up above it. Like, okay. So, so kindness. no religion? No. Um, any time in your life was there religion? No. My mum... My dad, I think, is quite religious, but he'd never impede that on us. He's never also stated what religion he is. He's read a lot of religious texts, like right. Bibles and Qurans and things. Just generally religious. He's a very philosophical and serious okay. man. But my mum mm. was always very anti-religion, and I remember I wanted to play um, mathletics, and I hated scripture. So my primary school did scripture every Friday. And so my mum wrote a note after I was like, Mum, I don't care about God. And she was like, all right, I'll write you a note. And I got out of scripture and I got to work on the school newspaper instead. So that was really fun. But, yeah, I've been raised without God. I just – I refuse to believe that my actions aren't a complete equation of my own thought. I don't like thinking that I'm working to serve some higher being that's never really served many so, people. So then, okay, so this leads me to the next question quite nicely, which is what do you think happens when we die? I think we die. I think mm. I think death affects more the people who were around you and loved you far more than it affects me. I don't think we're going to come back as anything. I love the thought. Um, I think it would be lovely to come back as something that could fly. Oh, yeah. But I just I, – I can't – for me, I just find it really hard. I'm like, why would I waste my time thinking about what happens after I die when I'm sitting here going, is this living? Like, I would rather – try and figure out an easier way to live mm. at the moment. So what is living then? So like if you think that like you have no religion yeah. and you think that once you're dead, you're dead, but, which by the way, just so that you know this is a safe space, like mm. is exactly what I believe as well. Yeah. Like I have a real sense of this is our only crack at this Yeah, and that like, you know, I, I, and I actually find it quite comforting. Me the too. idea that once it's over, it's completely it's over. I don't have to keep working. Yeah. Yeah. Like there, yeah. There's definitely a part of me that's like, oh, I don't want to be nice wanna... to get to stop. <laughs> I said to my friend the other day, I was like, what is the term for, like, I'm not yeah. suicidal. I don't want to die, yeah. but I don't want to live at the moment. I want to blip. I want to like, I want to oh, close my eyes for a couple of years and mm. wake up when I'm 47 a and coma. see that everything's all right. Yeah. I yeah. want an induced coma. You have coma ideation. Yes. Because like I have a thing called death ideation, which is like I'm not suicidal, but I sometimes like when I'm depressed, I will imagine how the relief of death. Yes. So like, you know, I, I like go to bed at night and I hope that I don't wake up the next yeah. morning. It is different to like wanting to take your own life, but, yeah. but it is not a great place to be in your, in your yeah. thinking when it's happening. I think you have what I actually have as well, which is coma ideation yes. or bunker ideation. Yes. yes. I want to be in a this cult recurring under the ground. fantasy that oh. I am in some rich person's bunker yes. and then the shit goes down and I get locked I in there nothing. by myself with just like everything I need. Yeah, everything I need for a couple of years Mate, just to have a break, read some I'd books. I'd be so happy with some tin <laughs> corn and some books. Yeah, totally. An excuse to get smarter. I often think about yeah. jail in that regard. Like right. I'm like if the jail prison system wasn't so fucked and racist and everything. Oh yeah, I'd if, love yeah the jail. apart from the jail bit. Yeah, apart from the jail bit. Yeah. If but I could, the, if I could voluntarily yeah. change 
check myself into a cell where, where all I, I can do like, is better my mind. Get a degree, yeah. oh. be locked away from the world. Get ripped. Have, have an hour of exercise a day. Eat, have food prepared for me. I Make can't some cook. wine in my toilet. Mate. All the things I've wanted to do in my I'm, life. I am most resourceful when I'm limited. Uh, like that's what I know about myself. So when life opens up, I, yeah. that's what I've been struggling with a lot because I didn't grow up with much money. And seeing the world as it is now, I live in Sydney of all places. I'm looking at like when my parents were my age, getting a flat wasn't this long, far away dream. Like I look, I, I'm ready to move out of my share house. You know, we've been living there for three years together. We yeah. all love each other, but I'm like you know, three yeah. years with a couple. And I used to live just by myself with my boyfriend yeah. in a three bedroom house. Yeah, so it's, it's hard to go from that to a share house. So I've been in this share house for three years and I keep looking at flats. And I'm like, I can't afford any of these. Like I can't afford any of these, even without double salary, I cannot, yep. we can't do this. And I get really angry because I feel like money, you know, like most people our age, our age, most people. We're the same age, I you and I. Like, yeah, why not? Absolutely the age same ideation, age. ideation, we can have yeah. that too. But I, <laughs> I look at how life was even 20, 30 yeah. years ago and I'm finding this sense of like, Christ, I just wish I could go there and live my life from that point onwards, you know? Like, I'm not buying a house ever. I've completely locked that idea down, so I'm going, okay, what else can I dream about? I don't want to get married. Um, I've talked about this with my boyfriend. We're both kids of divorce, bitter divorces. <laughs> so I would much rather spend that money on, you know, a keg of wine but I or think going overseas. Is, like, there's going to be an evolution of it, and there might be a time, you know, with the climate and all those sort of things where the idea of actually owning a house <laughs> becomes a terrible idea, yeah. you know? Or um, even just owning a house becomes completely obsolete because right. there's fires around you and, yeah. you know, sailing tsunamis and whatever. I mean, Oceanside property is the first stuff house that gets... Boat. You know. Houseboat. Houseboat. <laughs> uh, um, okay, we, we, we're running yeah, out of time, sorry. but I've got some more questions. Go. Um, would you prefer to know uh, when you die or how you die? I think how. I don't really care about would when. Would you avoid... If you found out how you died, would you avoid doing that thing? No, I'd probably steer into the skin. Yeah, do it more. Yeah. At this point, I feel like I'm going to come off really depressed. I, I'm not depressed. I just... I've weirdly been having this moment where I'm like, I'm not living past 50. Like, that's... I keep I keep having, like, the 27 club for middle age. Like, I'm like, I'm going to get to 50 and I hope I've lived everything I want to do by then. I'm hoping it'll change by the time I turn 50, but right now I'm like, how much know. better can it get? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Um, is the honest answer. So, to that. when doesn't really strike yeah. me as bad. Um, how I just would like to know it's not a fucking long disease. That's I think that'd be the or drowning. I hate drowning. Got caught in a room oh. when I was fifteen, and okay. it was the worst. Nearly drowned. All right. Okay. Good to know. Couldn't drown. Um, uh, best piece of advice or worst piece of advice you've ever got? Or best piece of advice I ever got was, um, well, best piece of advice I ever got was just say yes to everything. But it's also the worst piece of advice I've ever gotten because yeah. it's so easy to be taken <laughs> advantage of. But I I do like the yes yeah. and policy of like, I used to do gigs for free when I was a teenager, um, which I would never, ever do now. And I told all my students, don't ever do a gig for free. You're worth time. <laughs> but, but I will say those free gigs, you know, in the park or busking or yeah. I, did, I did pubs at like 16, 17, which is so illegal. Um, but they trained me so much quicker than you know, waiting around to see if I could do it. So, yeah, I, you know, somebody was like, you want to write a musical? I helped write a musical called Chappelle Chappelle when I was in uni. Well, actually, I just quit uni, but they needed a musician. About Dave Chappelle. Yeah. No, no, about Chappelle Corby. <laughs> oh, oh. And, um, and I that, like I think about that now and I'm like, I wrote a fucking musical. I helped write a musical. And that was all because I was bored. And they were like, do you want to help write a musical? And I went, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, one final question. Yes. I have a time machine. I can take you forward in time, backwards in time, round trip. You can go anywhere. You can visit yourself. You can ignore yourself. You can just go and peek at a moment in the past or the future. It doesn't really matter. But do you go forward or back? Back. Definitely How back. How far back? I reckon 
I reckon the sweet spot. I reckon back as I am now 20 years ago. <laughs> I really think just knowing what I know yeah. about history at that time, uh-huh. I'd just play all the right cards. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. I'd like, be yeah. like, yeah, no, women suck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like the other uh, girls. Give me such, the TV. She's a, such a great, yeah. <laughs> You know, she's just one of the lads. And then I just secretly weave my web. Sure. You know, that'd be great. I'd be Ida Buttrose by the time I'm... Uh, Gabby Bolt, thank you so I'm much for... No, leaving no, that in. I told you uh, I could leave, but no, look, I, Ida's not listening. She I do has this, not, Ida has not listened this far right. into the podcast. Good, because I do this thing where I'll make an edgy joke and then I'll be like, oh... I've, look, come on. On this podcast, All the right. amount of Ida Buttrose jokes we make on, like, our TV shows, like... <laughs> Because, like, constantly throughout, like, the time you make things, it's always fun just to make fun of power. Yeah. I have no – I got in so much trouble, though, like, this year because <laughs> we were talking about um, sex toys oh, on classic. the show. Like, uh, on, on, yeah. yeah. so growing on sex toys and the marketing of, like, modern sexuality. Oh, a, like, a, so, you know, yeah. the idea of, like, that, that it's now become – like this broad, like it used to be the whole sort of like dirty brown Taboo paper thing. bag. Yeah. And now, like particularly in that influencer world, you know, you've seen like sex positivity I've and sex toys. I've been offered a deal with of sex brand company. Yeah. So this is what we're talking about. Yeah. And so I made a joke about the um, the ABC should put one out for older women called the Ida Butt Rose, which I felt like was a funny <laughs> joke. And it's people blue, but it's got funny. so mad. Oh, come on. Like so mad. But and that's I a was great like, pun. It's just a pun. Yeah. It's just the pun pun. That's beautiful. We're just having a good time. Anyway, the point is you don't need to panic about okay, that. Right. Everything's fine. You're in a safe space. You're not going to be denied working opportunities at the ABC. Sometimes I say things and I go, oh. Because of that final moment. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Gabby Bolt, uh, your show is at? Uh, yes, I'm taking. I'm doing one show in Wollongong, which oh, yeah. I've never done before. The um, Gong? Yeah, in June. So that's okay. going to be in a Spiegel. And where can people find you, like in the online world and all yeah. those sort of things? <laughs> you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at, at Gabby Bolt or at Gabby Bolt Official, spelled two Bs and an I. And then you can usually find me searching my name anywhere else as well. (laughs) Thank you uh, very much for doing this, Gabby. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Listener.